VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, October the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's the producer. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, checking in with uh, Blair Bursey, originally from Gander, of course, professional golfer trying to qualify for the PGA Tour. They're playing at the University of New Mexico's championship course. Yesterday, Blair shot an even par 71. Now he's tied for 36th. We know that the top 20 will advance into the second stage of Q School, so he needs a couple of rounds in the 60s for sure in the next couple of days. But go get him. Good luck. A couple of interesting notes on this date in history in the National Hockey League. A couple of the legendary names, legendary players, commi- uh, achieved a couple of notable goals. On this date in 1957, Montreal Canadiens' Maurice the Rocket Richard became the first NHLer to score 500 goals. And on this date in 1966, Bobby Orr, number four, makes his NHL regular season debut for the Boston Bruins against the Detroit Red Wings. All right, a couple of big names there at the Rocket and number four. All right, so this story is really quite something. We know that all the delays and postponements for surgeries and procedures throughout the pandemic and then the consequential backlog for aforementioned. The issue regarding cancer patients and healthcare shortages when we talk about radiation therapists, this is really quite something. So we know that they closed one of the units at the H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Center last year, one of the medical linear accelerators. That remains closed to this day. Why? A shortage of radiation therapists. So as a result, between November the 1st of 2022 and September the 27th of 2023, the Provincial Cancer Care Program made 222 referrals for patients to receive services out of province, Toronto. In total, 193 have been treated or are being treated during this period. It's pretty staggering stuff. There was a recruitment to try to uh, shore up some 50% of their outstanding positions. They're still trying to recruit more. But as a result of this, there's also a national standard of 28 days after diagnosis to begin your radiation therapy. At one point, 50% of the cancer patients were not hitting that target of 28 days. Now it's down to some 30%. But this is whopping big stuff. You know, timely treatment for everything is obviously important, and maybe no more so than cancer. So we're not hitting national standards. One of the four units still remains closed at the Dr. H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Care Center here in the city of St. John's. So it just paints an even clearer picture about what these shortages mean. And yes, the cost and the anxiety and the frustration for an individual and their family to see them have to travel to Toronto. Now it's good that we've got a relationship with the Cancer Care Center in Toronto for this treatment. But capital city in a province in Canada in 2023, and this is the status? Furthermore to that, you know, I would imagine, like you, all I need is to see the healthcare professional I need to see when I need to see them. And so whether it be radiation therapists or anywhere up and down the line. So you know the fury that was kicked off when the province of Saskatchewan came to this province to try to recruit or to poach our healthcare professionals and those set to graduate. You know, so Minister Osborne yesterday was touting the effectiveness of our tit-for-tat strategy and got some solid interest, apparently, in the province of Nova Scotia. 
goes on to say, and this is where it becomes quite contradictory for me, goes on to say they have conversations with Saskatchewan that they're going to have passive recruitment because who can stop a province from uh, simply putting an ad on Career Beacon or something like that or floating the idea that there are opportunities in Saskatchewan or in Alberta or BC or wherever. So the tit-for-tat game, I'm sure there's a feel-good if there are indeed doctors, LPNs, nurse practitioners, radiation therapists up and down the line recruited to come to this province and set up shop. Even though some of the people that have come as radiation therapists, they've only committed for a short-term stay. So this is going to be an ongoing concern. And again, I understand, you just need to see whatever healthcare professional you need. But at some moment in time, we are just going to find ourselves pitted against each other. And just for instance, radiation therapists can come here for a couple of years, but then they can make upwards of $20,000 more in Nova Scotia. So you've heard me say it before, but we've got to figure this out. If it's simply a bidding war that is going to dictate whose healthcare system can be properly and fully staffed, deliver in a timely fashion, hit the national standards, decrease wait times, better positive healthcare outcomes. A bidding war is in all of our best, is not in anybody's best interest. So, are there gonna be cooler heads prevail? Does it require federal intervention? I mean, I'm again, like you, I need the feds to stay out of provincial jurisdiction. But, you know, if it's simply about the provinces that have the deepest pockets, how can that be beneficial to anybody? Because again, even if you are successful in Saskatchewan, you bring some healthcare pros in, they s- stay a short time, then BC just outbids you, and then you're back restarted. So, yeah, sure, good for healthcare professionals who are mobile and in demand, but that strategy at some point is going to blow up, and it's not going to see any province improve their healthcare delivery mo- model at all. How can it? Because at some point, richest provinces will be doing great, and the rest of the country will be doing terrible. Anyway, you want to take that on. We can do exactly that. And you've heard Brian Madoran, the VOCM News, talk about the price of fuel adjusted last night at the PUB. Diesel way up, 12.2 cents. Furnace oil up 5.4 cents. Gasoline down a little bit, about 3.4 cents per liter. You know, those in the diesel number, that's absolutely consequential and worth talking about. But here's some of the issues. Again, yesterday, there was a spat over the carbon tax in the House of Assembly. And yes, axe the tax has been a very popular go-to slogan for Conservative Party leader, Mr. Poliev. So, you know, the carbon tax will indeed probably be at the very top of the agenda when the federal election is eventually called. Now, obviously, the Conservatives are campaigning, as is their, their right. But the issue is, if we're going to talk about doing away with the tax, and when Canadians are now polled, anytime you refer to a tax and whether or not it should be decreased or dropped, of course there's going to be a whopping majority of Canadians say, yes, I want to pay less tax. The issue, if we're even going to be concerned about emissions and emission control, what they're talking about is replacing taxation and market pressures with technology. Fair enough. Technology, the advancements therein, innovative ideas have got to be incorporated throughout the gamut of issues concerning everybody in the country. But what is the tech? So the province has already announced $6 million to to look at carbon capture and storage. So the CCUS Innovation Challenge, carbon capture, storage and utilization, especially for heavy industry, including oil and gas production. And so you've heard the, the issue and the policy. They're going to research and try to develop a method for capturing the carbon and pumping it into the depleted oil fields offshore. 
just because I think there's a lot of real confusion and I will admit a bit of misunderstanding, including yours truly, about how it actually works. Does it actually work? What are other options for capturing and storing carbon? Where is it done elsewhere? How effective is it? So one of the academics that was uh, present for the announcement the other day, Dr. Leslie James, professor and former Chevron chair of petroleum engineering in the Department of Process Engineering at Memorial University. She also heads up the Hibernia Enhanced Oil Recovery Laboratory and will be one of the go-to academic leads on this issue. Dr. Leslie James has uh, graciously offered to join us at 11 o'clock. So we'll do a little Carbon Capture 101. Because we understand how the carbon tax works. We understand that it comes with a rebate. Now we need to understand, if we're going to lean on tech, let's understand the tech. Because there's going to be a lot of comparisons, and axe attacks and replace it with tech is going to be the rally cry from one side. And then the other side will talk about a price on emissions and curbing behavior and all the rest. So we understand carbon tax. Let's try to understand carbon uh, capture and storage. Hopefully that'll be helpful information. As you make up your mind as to, that's if you're concerned with emission control to begin with, but it is going to be part of the campaign, if not the lead issue when the federal election is eventually triggered. So that's coming up at around 11 o'clock this morning, and we appreciate her time. And then you, know, you go on yesterday, and the Minister of Finance, I guess this is in reaction to a specific question about monitoring the price of oil. I don't know what kind of monitoring needs to happen because it's a volatile global commodity. This province has absolutely zero influence on the price per barrel, you know, unlike OPEC members or just Saudi Arabia alone or Russia or what have you. Yeah, we're a big producer in this country, fourth largest producer in the world. But we really don't play those silly uh, manipulative games that other countries and organizations do, like the cartel that is OPEC. Okay. So the provincial budget said 86 bucks a barrel with the Canadian dollar trading against the American dollar at 75.75 cents. Right now, oil about 92 bucks a barrel and about 73 cents the Canadian dollar versus the greenback. So I don't know what monitoring actually means or looks like. We'll find out come the fall fiscal update, which I believe is in a couple of weeks. And then, of course, at the end of the fiscal year, at the end of next March. You know, no decisions can be made until the math is done, and the math can't be done until the fiscal year comes and goes, right? So anyway, I'm not really sure what monitoring means, but you want to talk about it, let's go. A couple of quick ones. So we know that the fishery, especially this year's crab fishery, was a pretty big mess, right? Lots of arguments, lots of conversation, of course, a six-week standoff or tie-up. For starters, first thing we got to do is get the price setting right. Because at this moment in time, the quiet part was said out loud. Even the price setting panel said 220 is probably not the right price. After six weeks of negotiations, they kind of landed where the first offer was in the first place. You know, to have a sliding scale based on what the market could bear. Fair enough. Now, I'm told and I've read that the Association of Seafood Producers has filed a grievance against the FFAW because of the standoff. I don't know what money can be attached to it because the total allowable catch up somewhere in the high 90% was landed. So a couple of interesting questions come from this. Number one, what actually constitutes a strike? Because inside the Fisheries Act, you are not allowed to strike. There's a no strike clause right there in the act itself. The FFAW say this is not a strike. Secondly, they didn't even really lead the charge here. It was basically left up to Jason Sullivan up the shore, Bay Bulls fisherman Jason Sullivan. So that's the first question that we have to answer is, did that actually constitute a strike? Now, there was a distinct air of solidarity 
And yes, there was lots of pushback when people said, I can't wait any longer. I got to go get my crab. And then, of course, you're at the whim of the association and their member processors as to how much they pay, when they're going to pay it, trip limits and all the rest. So this is going to be fascinating. It's going to take a while through arbitration, maybe four, six, seven, eight months before we finally get a ruling on it. So number one, we've got to figure out how to set a price. And number two, before you even get down to the brass tax of compensation and the grievance, what's a strike? You know, can it be covertly led by a member who is not a member of the leadership group at the FFAW, but a six-week standoff is something, does it actually speak to the definition of strike in the Fisheries Act? That's going to be pretty interesting to follow through. And you want to take that on this morning? You know what to do. We've got a pretty busy show coming up, so just a couple of very quick ones before we get to your call. And this is in Ottawa. And, of course, you know, you know me. I'm willing to talk about anything under the sun. So yesterday was yet another ridiculous ongoings. You know, we ought to talk about the behavior and the lack thereof and the schoolyard antics and the boorish behavior that we see in Houses of Assembly across the country, including here, and absolutely in the House of Commons. So the new speaker, Greg Fergus, Greg Fergus, he was elected about uh, he was elected earlier this month. Anyway, to replace Anthony Roder, of course, we all know the story about a Nazi getting a couple of standing ovations in the House of Commons, unbeknownst to Mr. Roder, consequently he had to resign. So, you know, there are standing rules for how the House of Commons is uh, supposed to operate and the behavior of the members. The problem is they're not enforced. So consequently, it becomes a bit of a three-ring circus. So the new speaker had prepared some remarks to deliver before question period. Mr. Poliev stood up uh, ready to ask his first question. You know, they try to get it going at the same time every day, 2.15 p.m., But Speaker Fergus stood there, and he wanted to deliver his remarks. And then, all of a sudden, there was uh, point of order after point of order about the so-called, and this is where it becomes laughable, is that to start at 2.15, because it's a sacred period, is question period. If you think it's sacred, maybe treat it like it's sacred, as opposed to the bozo stuff that we see from all parties at certain times. So Mr. Fergus simply wanted to say, here's how business is going to be conducted, and here are things that I will not tolerate. And yet, point of order after point of order to go right back to where we, where we began. You know, at some point, it's absolutely embarrassing. And it's not just the Canadian House of Commons that gets on that way. It's legislatures and congressional bodies worldwide that have lots of problems. But that doesn't mean that we have to follow the leader down the pathway of shenanigans and foolishness. So, amazing. Amazing to me. Yeah, you have a problem with starting on time, which is only loosely enforced, because it's a sacred period. Good God, if that's how we're treating sacred periods in this country, we've got a lot of growing up to do. Anyway, that was a fascinating one and infuriating. That happened yesterday in Ottawa. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're going to kick it off with speaking with the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. That's Doug Pawson. Obviously, lots on the go on the housing front, the emergency shelter front. And yesterday, Minister Sarah Studley said that no consideration of rent control because her assertion is it doesn't work. So we'll dig into that and whatever you want to talk about. Oh, Jennifer Williams, the CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, is also going to be on the show shortly, so stay tuned for that. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the Executive Director at End Homelessness St. John's. That's Doug Pawson. Good morning, Doug. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. We understand you're a little under, under the weather, so I appreciate the time. 
Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So there's just so much to get to here. I'm not even really sure where to start when we talk about housing, but let's talk with emergency, emergency shelters. You know, amazingly, people are saying living in a tent is better and safer than being inside an emergency shelter. What are the specific stories you hear? We hear about violence and stabbing and solicitation for sex and drug use and what have you. Paint us a picture of some of the stories you've heard, which make them uh, unsafe, unclean and uninhabitable for so many people. Yeah, I mean, these are things that we hear about here in St. John's and across across the country, to be honest. I mean, as people are, as more and more people are looking for uh, for housing, they're, they're resorting, they have to resort to staying in a shelter. And sometimes these become, you know, really unsafe. And if we're, if, we're, if I'm being honest, I mean, these shelters are becoming de facto, you know, institutions for people who are unwell and unable to access treatment, support, mental health uh, supports and and it gets downloaded to community and, and this is what we see and so it's not surprising to hear you know folks up at confederation hill um say things like it's it's safer for me to be in a tent than in a shelter have you ever asked the question of a government official as to why they're so keen to continue leaning on private for-profit shelters we know that some people have been told that they can't stay at places like for instance the gathering place because of violence or because of whatever the case may be so they end up in these for-profit emergency shelters it costs us millions of dollars i mean those refunding millions of dollars to better more adequate safe and monitor sites you would think it's in everyone's collective best interest do you have any earthly idea why the government continues to lean on these private for-profits well, I think I, I think the, the the answer is because they want to make sure people have something. They want to make sure people have an option that's not sleeping rough or being out in the in the elements. So I think number one, you know, that's that's a key for them is making sure that somebody has an option. But I think number number two is you know pre pandemic we were talking about converting a lot of the shelter spaces into into more uh, permanent supported housing options. A lot of shelters are you know a, a single room or semi private room, and you know when the numbers were much lower, those conversations were happening so that you could you could actually move people into a housing uh, arrangement instead of relying on an emergency shelter arrangement. I guess, you know, post-pandemic, you know, as we've come out of it, you know, the housing crunch and the cost of living is just forcing more and more and more people into into homelessness. And so they're, they're relying on any operator that they have an existing relationship with. It's, it's not ideal, but I think what they're trying to do is make sure um, people have an option. And, and I'm not trying to justify the rationale for having, you know, these, these notorious operators that we've all, all heard about who don't treat people well, who don't maintain the, the standards of their property. But I think, that's, I think that's partially the reason for it. Do we ever get a chance to look at the result of inspections? Because apparently there's been 10 uh, conducted since April the 1st of this year, 39 uh, inspections of for-profit shelters in fiscal year 22-23. You know, and they'll say that a complaint doesn't mean necessarily a violation. But do we ever see the result of an inspection? Because a social worker or a housing officer can show up uh, unannounced and conduct an inspection. Do we ever see what happens? So I think I think you're just hitting on the exact issue that you know the the reason for shelter standards are so desperately needed and and why we're you know working with the province at this point our community partners to engage in that process because we do have 
you know, an expectation for property standards to be maintained, for uh, uh, for services to be to be wrapped around individuals who require supports in those settings, and and those just don't exist. So currently, the you know the the property standards are are. Um, they're maintained, or I guess they're sort of examined by the, the city of St. John's, at least here in town. Um, and it, they're just looking to make sure that the property is, made, is is up to the building standards requirement. But it's not taking into consideration the needs of individuals in those situations. So that's exactly why we want to engage in the prop, in the shelter standards conversation, because it's, it requires more of a philosophy of how we support individuals in those moments of need, not just making sure a window is is, is up to code and, and egress is met. You're one of the members of the steering committee. There's also uh, a person who's part of the for-profit and uh, shelter operator. So, and I'm not sure the makeup of the entirety of the steering committee, but the government, again, has hired a consulting company. This time it's Org Code Consulting to come up with a shelter standards framework. On this front, you would think that there would be collective wisdom across the country to have nationwide standards. You needn't try to reinvent the wheel. What do we understand about other jurisdictions and the standards that they have in place for their emergency shelters? Because Currently, we have little to none, and consequently, we find ourselves where we are. What do you know about other provinces? What do you make of the potential for it to be nationalized? Or that's not yeah, the right I word, for a national standard. No, I think, you're, I think you're asking the right question, Patty. I think, you know, you, you would expect that, uh, you know, there would be, there'd be a, a standards, a series of standards that would be, um, you know, adopted nationally by different jurisdictions. But that, that really isn't the case. So I think this is an opportunity to lead in many ways. Um, municipalities around the country are often asked to, excuse me, to administer the shelter system, and so here we have a provincial government that that administers it. So we're we're looking at ways that we can adopt a series of standards that would be met, you know, across the province. That that isn't the case in in most well in any other province. Uh, the city of Toronto has standards, shelter standards, but it doesn't have a necessarily a philosophy underpinning it, like. Are we are we operating from a trauma informed, low barrier, uh, harm reduction focused? Are we putting the individual at the center of the of their of their care? Are we you know prioritizing housing as part of the wraparound supports? That that isn't the case in in any jurisdiction. So, I, I think you know we have an opportunity to lead in the front, and this is why you know having a shelter standards. Um, framework is going to be important because we're not just talking about the provision of, of linens and food and whatnot. We're talking about a philosophy that underpins how people are supported, and it's more and more important than well, more important than ever across the country to support individuals who are experiencing homelessness because it's not just individuals down on their luck always, right? Like most of the individuals are are experiencing se- severe and acute you know mental health crisis, substance use. Um, and, and just like long-term trauma that's impacted because their own survival is determined by a system. Um, and so we need to make sure that a, like a series of standards can can support those individuals. I'm imagining standards look something like, you know, cleanliness, nutritious food, wraparound services like social work, mental health, addictions, and what have you. Would, that, would and should that include? Because for some people, there's always going to be a level of care required. But for others, there might be opportunities to break the cycle of homelessness and to break the cycle of requiring an emergency uh, shelter bed. 
does the standards include supports beyond the wraparounds that I just mentioned? Like, you know, whether it be getting some work done at the Brother T.I. Murphy Center or whether it be remedial training and or retraining because there is a way to start to break the cycle as opposed to simply churn from one bed to another, one counselor, one social worker to another because that doesn't necessarily get us where we need to be either as, as a society. No, exactly. And, and the standards aren't, aren't uh, finished yet, but there is there is a network, um, the Canadian um, uh, Shelter Transformation Network that that Orcode, who's the consultant for the province, um, co-chairs with uh, with with uh, other folks who run shelters across the country. They're looking at exactly those types of things. Like, how do you ensure that we're aligning resources? So I'll give you an example. Like, we're to, we're at Animals of St. John's. We're responsible for administering the federal government's uh, response to homelessness. How does that get embedded into the provincial government's response? It's not there to date. So we have to make sure that we're aligning all of the resources available. We're aligning our plans. We're aligning our strategies to make sure that happens. Because you can talk about the provision of, of, of services um, or, or wraparound services, but until you're working in lockstep, it's really difficult to make sure that that happens. And so, you know, you and I have we've talked about this too, right? Like, you know, people bounce around between the most expensive emergency options available to them shelter, hospital, uh, corrections. And it, and it becomes a revolving door when folks don't have um, information to be, to be shared or, or when, when folks don't have access to support and services that they can avail of. So it comes down to how are we sharing information together, how are we working together. You know, we work really closely with, with, with you know, most of the community partners. We need the provincial government to be right in lockstep with us across the across all of those spectrums of options, and that's that's really what I hope comes out of the shelter standards. Is there's a philosophy underpinning it, there's an alignment of resources, and that we're working together to make sure that every individual can can avail of the supports and services when they need of it. Appreciate the time, Sorry, Doug. Feel better. Yeah, thanks again, Patty. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Doug Pawson, Executive Director at End Homelessness St. John's. And I've been asked in the past, why focus so much in on people that are in need of those types of services? You know, what about me, the middle-class guy or man or woman? I own my own home, and I've got my own problems. Look, we talk about those, too. But these folks who need these supports, it comes with a financial cost. Consequently, you're helping to pay for it. It comes with a societal impact. Some of that is very negative. That affects your life day to day. So, yes, we can talk about, you know, from the elites to the middle class to the poor to the working poor and those who are in desperate need. Anyway, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the room's acting director of museum and galleries. That's Kate Woolworth. Good morning, Kate Wolforth. Pardon me, Kate. Welcome to the show. You're on the air. How's it going? Great. You? Good. Excellent. Well, tell us about some free Student Friday action. Well, a few years ago, in December 2019, um, we had a suggestion from one of our staff, actually, who was a student at MUN, that we start offering free admission for students, post-secondary students, as your college, your past college just said. Cost of living right now is, is really hard, and students are feeling it hard, and we knew that even a few years ago. So we opened up our um, free admissions for post-secondary students every Friday at the rooms. What's uh, traffic been like at the rooms, period? Uh, it's been really great. We've had a great year. Certainly, we've picked up from uh, from after the pandemic. We had a lot of cruise ships this summer. I think a lot of people saw those in the harbor. And um, so it's been, it's been pretty busy here at the rooms. Uh, this past weekend, you hosted the 50th Annual Sport NL Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which has always been a great event. It's usually been at a hotel, but now it's come to the rooms. You've tried to take some of the... Uh, 
the stuff and the gear and the uniforms associated with that. Tell us about that exhibit. Oh, that's a really fun exhibit. So it just opened on the weekend in, in collaboration with the Sports Hall of Fame. And it presents a lot of the really significant stories. A lot of people know that this province has a huge sport history and some really interesting stories. So we just wanted to highlight seven of those. We went out to all the members of the Sports Hall of Fame and asked for their their stories and um, we we ended up with seven really great ones so those are on right now and anyone can come in and see that because it's completely free um, it's on our level three uh, right in the atrium and not to put you on the spot can you share one story or a part of one story just to wet the whistle of the patrons oh my gosh my favorite one is Joanne McDonald who is a really significant athlete in this province and uh, she is a wheelchair user and mm-hmm. if you go up to the gallery you can see or into the exhibit you can see all of her accomplishments going back years and years and years so I think she's she's got one of my favorite stories for sure yeah she's been a real fixture and a real lead on the power of movement you know Joanne's a terrific person and was a phenomenal athlete so anything else you want to tell us about or any other exhibit that people might be interested in before we run out of time I'm uh, sure we have a new exhibit called Making Home Here that's open until January. That's all about um, new immigration stories and with artists, seven different artists. That's a great show. Um, we have uh, a new exhibition called How Do I Look that's opening this Friday. That's a lot of um, new artworks from our permanent collection. And we're really excited. Uh, some people might have heard about Billy Gauthier's sculpture that he made at the uh, Bonavista Biennale. That's coming here in November. So we're really excited about that. I'm glad to hear about Free Student Friday for the post-secondary students because the rooms are spectacular. Many people have probably just driven by it a thousand times and have never taken the opportunity to go inside. It's completely worth it. Maybe have a lunch while you're at it. Uh, Anything else quickly, Kate, before I have to go? We're open uh, on Fridays for those students from uh, 10 to 9 p.m. and our cafe is open till 9 p.m. too on Fridays. Good to have you on the show. Good luck. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Kate Wolforth, the acting director of Museum and Galleries. And, of course, Joanne McDonald, terrific athlete. And it's not that long ago that Mel Fitzgerald passed away, one of the real pioneers of parasport in Canada and this province. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by the CEO at Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. That's Jennifer Williams. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the CEO of Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. That's Jennifer Williams. Good morning, Jennifer. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on. So 150 megawatts has grabbed the attention of many. So there's one thing when Hatch comes in and does some uh, recommendations for you you folks about backup generation. And their number one recommendation was 150 megawatt diesel generator at Holyrood. And it's only recommendation. has not been put forward to the PUB by Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Where are we? Uh, yes, so I'm, I'm glad I can come on and sort of help um, begin to dispel, say, some of the misunderstanding that may be out there. Um, I would suggest that while it's a recommendation of 150, it was a recommendation of how much could we sustain in the area. So it wasn't a recommendation to go ahead and do this. So we had to be really, really clear that this is not a recommendation at this time at all to proceed with any kind of generation um, from a from a fossil fuel uh, combustion turbine. Um, I would also note, though, obviously, that we have uh, major load growth that's happening in the province. And so this is exactly why we are looking at a whole host of options of what is the right decision go forward to um, supply power into the future. 
and uh, as part of that a combustion turbine that would we would require to eventually be able to convert to um, renewable fuel um, at least a portion of um, we're looking at combustion turbine. We'd be looking at more hydroelectricity. We'd be looking at batteries, wind, pumped storage, all host of things. So I want to make it really, really clear that we have made no recommendation for any one solution at this time. So even inside the world of a recommendation, is this for full-time, 24-7 uh, production for the grid, or is it simply a backup? Correct. Thanks for asking that. That's exactly what we're looking at um, with regards to that kind of solution. Um, those type of solutions that you would see across the country and even the Canadian um, draft clean electricity regulations um, allow for um, this kind of facility to be used in the production of electricity and the supply. But it's typically being allowed for in the draft regulations for a very small portion of the year. I think it's around 5% of the year. So it is not meant to be a 24-7 solution that would supply power to people. It is either um, emergency, which would be, uh, I'll call it backup, I think it's the right word to use, or peaking. And you'll see that, um, and you'll see that already in other jurisdictions, you use those for peakers. And we have one now as well that we use um, a fair bit. Well, not a fair, but again, you know, with, with a, an appropriate amount um, out of Holy Road, we have one in, in um, Happy Valley Goose Bay and Stephenville and out in Paradise. So um, you generally use them to do the peak and then you often use them as well if you need it for backup purposes. So if that 150, if the potential for that, and I, I know you haven't landed on anything, what's the timeline for coming up with a proposal for the PUB? So um, we're looking at um, all kinds of options and submitting many studies, and you've probably heard me talk about that before, to the Public Utilities Board. Um, and for example, we also just submitted a study on battery storage. Um, so basically between now and this time about next year, probably you know in late 2024, we believe we will have all of the studies done, all of the evidence created and analyzed and put into our models for what is the right um, solution that both meets reliability criteria as well as um, is the right financial decision um, for the province. Um, we do have, as I mentioned, load growth is happening. So there's, you know, options for hydroelectricity um, expansion here in the province that we are examining very closely as well. So it'll be about another year before folks would hear um, exactly what we would land on with regards to an actual recommendation. Before we get to hydro expansion, the 150 is also an order that possibly has been conflated by folks regarding backup generation at Holy Road and the apparent need by World Energy GH2 for a portion of the year to need access to 150 megawatts. Where would that come from? What should we understand or where are we regarding that power demand? And that's only one of five projects that's moving ahead potentially. Right. Yeah, thanks. That, that's another good um, connection that folks are probably making, but I'd like to break that connection. Um, the, the need for uh, potential backup power and certainly the need for additional um, electricity supply, which is stuff that could run 24 hours a day, which wouldn't be a combustion turbine, um, we needed that well in advance of anybody um, asking for any kind of power from hydro. And it also should be made very, very clear that um, to use that one project that you mentioned, they have a very small firm power request. It's only, I think, about um, you know just a few megawatts. So there's there's not a big firm power request. Yes, they have communicated, and I think um, it's, it's, it's in their um, environmental impact statement, um, that they would like non-firm power. And so that is something that you can provide when it's available. Um, those types of things have zero connection to um, the 
the I guess the outcome of the recommendation of Hatch, like zero connection to it. And it is very much just Hatch's recommendation is mostly connected to how much fuel we could actually probably sustain here, as well as, you know, what, what would make the most sense for, for this jurisdiction. So even if the one fifty four back up and you know, I know we haven't landed anywhere yet, but how would even non firm requirements for just that one project on the Port of Port Peninsula be satisfied? Because when it's available is something that hydro can navigate, but when it's available is maybe not something they can navigate because they'll need it when they need it. So how would it be satisfied? So that is where um, our, our very smart um, engineering teams had to work with all the proponents who may want to interconnect. And that's not just a wind hydrogen project. That's any kind of large project that may want to interconnect. And it is typical utility practice for um, any large proponent when they're coming to interconnect that we have to do what's called a system impact study. And that is a, a highly technical study that says, okay, if I'm going to connect to your system and either push power onto your system or want to pull power from the system, what does that what does that do to the rest of the customers and the rest of the system? So we are um, starting that process now with, with any proponent who wants to interconnect to the system. And with, that's going to be many, many months long um, um, engineering analysis. And so that's, that's the steps that we're in right now. And those kinds of questions about, you know, is it even possible to seek that non-firm power? When could you provide it? Um, that's what we will answer um, coming out of those system impact studies. We're anticipating by the end of this month the provincial government will say yay or nay to one or two or three or four or five of these to proceed to the next phase. Does that not indeed require final determination by Hydro about provision of power? Because if that's going to be unmanageable, then green lights are premature. Or am I misreading this? No. So um, I guess the, the government process for access to land is obviously one very important um, component of the proponent's decision-making process. Um, so that, that, that is moving along. And obviously, we, we stay in close contact with government and how those processes are going and if they need us to factor into those decisions. And as we previously discussed, Hydro had um, participated in the evaluation process with government on the various proponents, especially as it relates to impact on, on the grid, as well as therefore then impact on the rest of the customers that we serve. Um, but the, the, as I mentioned, those system impact studies that we're going to do, they will not be done by the end of October. They will not be done by the end of November. Mm-hmm. They won't be done by the end of this year. So as, as the proponents move through the Crown land process with government, um, we are then also still analyzing the engineering analysis. So that's going to take a lot longer than that. But, you know, there's a whole host of steps that any proponent would have to go through, of which Crown Land is one, and then separately, grid access is another. And, and they don't have to be tied together. In the demand forecast, you know, people will talk about electric vehicles and homes transitioning from oil to whether it be central heat pumps or what have you. Then I mean, further electrification or decarbonization. Where in the load forecast have you factored in the mining industry? Because it stands to reason that with the battle for critical minerals and all that we have in Labrador through the Labrador trough, that there's going to be some big opportunities in mining, which is a big draw on power. How does that get factored in? So I would say the things that we know about are already factored in. So, for example, Marathon Gold, obviously, you know, they're well along with their plans and processes. So the things that we know about and and have been working with customers on, they are absolutely factored into our our forecast that that feeds into our need to have more supply. 
Uh, for the projects that are still examining their financial viability, for example, like I said, some of the things in Labrador, they are not in our forecast. And the reason why, Patty, we don't include them in the forecast yet is if we include them in our forecast and then say, here's the evidence to build something, and then that project, and then we start building, and we, you know, we start doing all those processes, and we start building something, and then that proponent chooses not to proceed with X project, um, all the rest of the customers are left on the hook for those costs that you've invested in. So it is um, it is a bit of um, a, a, an iterative process um, that you have to work through with these proponents that are looking for power. Um, but we do not have yet major projects from a mining perspective included in the forecast because we don't have any uh, firm requests from those customers um, because they haven't made their final decisions yet. Makes sense. Even with the, the built into the load forecast, we can you know generate lots of power. We'll, we'll get to hydro expansion in a second, but is the grid itself up to the demand forecast? Will there need to be transmission work done or transmission uh, capacity added? I think that there's high, I mean, if I project ahead to 2050, absolutely. There's there's no way we can take, you know, a large portion of our economy, cars, homes, you know, various industrial processes, and pop them onto um, a new grid without the grid itself, the actual wires being expanded. Um, and I would suggest that even distribution would probably have to be expanded as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think definitely going ahead to 2050, we're going to need transmission expansion. Probably to 2035, um, I'll go back to the customer you just mentioned, the customers in Labrador, absolutely we'll need transmission expansion there. Exactly where transmission expansion um, occurs on the island will depend on where you put your um, your generation source as well as then where the load actually materializes. So um, I, I, I can't imagine that we won't have more transition, transmission in the future. Um, we certainly will have uh, generation as well, but exactly what that looks like um, will will come out over the next few years. Hydro expansion, I assume that means Gull Island. Now, the whole Atlantic Loop conversation, we didn't have a whole lot of power to contribute without expanding hydro, and now Nova Scotia and New Brunswick are deciding to go their own way on this, so I don't know what that means for the future of whatever the Atlantic Loop actually means. What's the appetite for Gull? Because I know the conversation is ongoing in 2041 in the province of Quebec, and they need power, and if the Atlantic Loop ever comes to pass, we didn't have a whole lot to contribute, you know, with excess power. So where are we on Gull? I mean, there's historically been some work done on on site there and understanding the 2,225 megawatts, but where are we precisely? Is that a project Mm -hmm. that's actually on the table? I'll, I'll open um, the answer just uh, when I was referring to hydroelectric expansion. There, there's much smaller projects, um, um, certainly on the island, to deal with some island load that, that would happen, I think, you know, um, in advance of something along those lines. And certainly even at Churchill Falls itself, there's projects there that can happen um, in advance of Gulf if that was, you know, the right decision. So when I referenced um, that, you know, there's hydroelectric options to supply load growth, um, that's really what I was referring to kind of in the very near term as it relates to the auctions that we're looking at. So, for example, you've heard me talk before about an eighth unit down in Bay Despair. Cat Arm can have another unit. So when I mentioned um, that hydroelectric um, expansion um, a few minutes ago, it was mostly related to kind of the very near term options available to us. But I will go to your question um, around Gull. Um, you you can hear any any um, even outside this province politician talk about how um, how, how 
important, I guess, goal would be as a project for um, the region. Um, and I think we, we remain, you know, that it is something that could be developed in the future. I think an awful lot of um, right things would have to happen in order for that to become um, a priority at this time. So, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, is in our our you know, suite of options available to us regionally and provincially to develop if necessary. So we're, we're very pleased to have access to that, that asset. Politicians out of province, notably Premier Legault in Quebec. I follow the Quebec press a lot. He talks about it a lot. So he mm-hmm. obviously thinks there's something afoot there, whether or not there is or whether or not that's just political posturing, I don't know. Last one and quick one. What role does Newfoundland Labrador Hydro play with the ongoing discussions regarding regulations, royalty regime regarding offshore wind? We know that's happening. Where does Newfoundland Labrador Hydro fold into the negotiations, the discussions, and the eventuality if it comes to, to uh, comes to pass. Mm-hmm. I would suggest um, no role um, with regard to any kind of um, you know um, royalty fees or anything at all like that. Um, however, if and when I shouldn't say if, but when because yeah. you can see it elsewhere in the world. Certainly, and I, I follow. Um, a lot of those types of projects. I was reading about Massachusetts yesterday, um, mm-hmm. offshore England the other day. That's a good project that just had its first turbine turning. Um, offshore wind is a great option for supply. As as that evolves and matures, um, it can therefore then become one of the options. As, as I mentioned, you know, we're examining all kinds of options um, that we want to send out to the public um, via the Public Utilities Board and, and be examined. We are learning from Muskrat Falls, obviously, and how we make decisions and how public we are. I would suggest that um, offshore wind um, would become an option available to us. Um, so we're very supportive of any advancements um, that are taking place to, to make that an actual viable option for hydro um, in order to serve customers on in, in the province. I believe offshore England, they're talking about 1,000 wind turbines creating 15 megawatts per turbine. So massive opportunity. And not one single offshore turbine exists in Canada today, but it's coming. You can feel it. Uh, anything, any final thoughts before we say goodbye, Jennifer? No, I'm just happy, uh, Patty, to, you know, to come on and sort of talk with customers as, as much as possible. So I really do appreciate the opportunity and uh, we're happy to come back anytime. And we appreciate the time. Thanks for this. Okay, take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Jennifer Williams, CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Uh, let's take a break. If you want to pick up on anything that you heard there, you can do that or pick up to- a topic of your choosing right after this. When we come back, co-op housing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Deputy Mayor of the City of St. John's. That's Sheila O'Leary. Deputy Mayor O'Leary, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I'm uh, just. I just wanted to shoot in about uh, Co-op Week. Of course, on the heels of the uh, proclamation, uh, I attended a, an event last evening that was so interesting. Of course, in this climate, of course, where uh, affordable living and housing uh, is, you know, the, the first conversation on everybody's mind. Um, there was an excellent discussion about co-op housing, and uh, so I went uh, just to participate to learn about what uh, what was going to be proposed. It was hosted by the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Cooperatives and Channel, uh, who's the Cooperative Housing Association, Newfoundland Labrador. And, you know, they've been doing great work in the community uh, for quite some time, but it, it's, it's kind of been quiet. So uh, last night there was quite a, um, a group of people that showed up at uh, St. Peter's in Mount Pearl to uh, to hear about uh, the information. And um, it I think it is really, truly one of the potential opportunities for providing affordable living situations for individuals in our province and certainly for me my concern of course uh, specifically to the city of st john's um 
there was information the the um, the contact uh, the property and project manager is Rosalind Langer and um, she spoke as well as Kristen Murray and Kristen Murray is the ED with the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Cooperatives and so they uh, both kind of together kind of gave kind of a history lesson on cooperative housing uh, in our province and about how there's basically a wait list of 140, 150 people for co-op houses just even locally. Um, and, you know, kind of itemize the benefits of cooperative living, um, about how they not only provide affordable homes. And, you know, you were you were talking about, you know, when you were speaking with Doug Pawson there earlier, you know, it's not just about uh, people, you know, who obviously need absolute attention for mental health addictions and that kind of servicing. But people, you know, all kinds of people are feeling the impact, certainly, mm-hmm. right now. And... So this is not just about affordable homes, um, but it contributes significantly to uh, local communities. Uh, yeah. Fantastic conversations that were had. And um, so I, I just wanted to talk about it, uh, you know, kind of bring it forward, because uh, I'm certainly bringing the information that I received last night to our, to our council, to our staff to discuss, because the big issue that they talked about was it's a land trust. They were looking for land donations so that they can kind of get these upstarts going. And and uh, I guess I would liken it to the Nature Conservancy. You know how you kind of get this kind of land trust situation happening. This is kind of the template where co-op housing can happen. And they can come in all kinds of different sizes and shapes and forms. Um, but what it does is it gives power to the people so that they can have um, secure housing uh, for for in perpetuity and um, it's a, a really great model and I think that all of us as gov- government leaders from the city of St. John's to the province and on and beyond I think really need to look at this model and see uh, sure. see if we can do something with it right? Yeah and they're not all created equal I mean co- housing, housing co-ops in Canada are as old as the 1970s some of them are rental co-ops you know no outside landlord all the, vo- all the decisions made by a board then there's also housing co-ops that have equity included and it's not for it's not like newfoundland labrador housing corp kind of stuff this is focused low middle income families who you know and it's at cost generally a co-op comes with an at cost feature and the potential for equity so i guess what we'd have to figure out is exactly what co-op model would be adopted because that'll tell the tale with you know how it fits into the housing landscape here because again the piece with an equity stake is vastly different than at cost with just board decisions Absolutely. But what it does is it enables people to actually have some say. Obviously, they're run by boards of the people who are living, you know, are a part of the cooperative. And uh, the model, I think, is really great because it takes, you know, it takes the sting out of, uh, you know, again, Newfoundland Labrador housing, uh, for example, obviously, is government run Mm -hmm. and not unlike, you know, St. John's housing certainly is, of course, a city run. uh, And then you have the private landlords. But this actually gives power to the people who are actually living and benefiting and it creates beautiful community uh, and I'm like again I was there to learn and some of the testimonies that were uh, were offered last night were such positive stories uh, um, that really uh, positively impacted families um, and gave them something sustainable um, and without um, the cost of living going you know shooting sky high a way to control uh, affordability and uh, I really think that it was a, a, you know for me a good start in understanding a little bit more about how they run 
And uh, again, one very small piece of a large pie when we're dealing with affordable living, especially in this in this time and day, right? Yeah, I'm happy to flesh it out because it's going to take every option available to get where we need to be on housing. And curiously, yep. while we're talking, my newest follower on Twitter is the Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative. Might be a good place to start with some evidence-based stuff, people who know how these models work, the differences between. So maybe they'll be our next housing-related guest. Uh, anything else quickly this morning, Sheila, before we take a break no, from the news? No, that's it. I'm just really, I'm really happy to always hear Doug Pawson speaking to and Homelessness St. John's. Uh, you know, certainly we work very closely with them. And, of course, we're trying to find whatever kind of opportunities that we can to uh, support affordable living and uh, I, and I think that, that you know cooperative housing certainly is one of those op- uh, opportunities uh, to grow uh, in our city in our province so uh, thank you so much for your time Patty and I, I would certainly encourage people to check out the cooperative housing Association of Newfoundland Labrador Rosalind Langer she was she was fantastic and there's lots of information to be gained there if you wouldn't mind if you sent me an email with her contact coordinates we'll have her on uh, absolutely perfect thank I you Sheila Okay, take care. You Bye-bye. Too. Bye-bye. Sheila O'Leary, Deputy Mayor of the City of St. John's. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Kevin wants to respond to uh, Jennifer Williams. And now one of my new favorite topics that I'm trying to learn more about is the global decline in eelgrass. What it means as a carbon sink, but also for an incubator for marine wildlife. So Rebecca Brushett, she's going to join us on the program. She's leading one of these researchers, research organizations out in Grossmorn. Sean's uh, talk about the Stephenville Airport as well. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to Rebecca Brushett. She's the Marine Planning and Engagement Coordinator with the Ecology Action Center in Halifax, and she's on three. Good morning, Rebecca. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Excellent this morning. Thank you. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm so such a strange cat. All of a sudden, now I'm reading about and trying to learn more about eelgrass. So, which is kind of funny. But when you read more about it, it is really a linchpin. So let's just get back to, for starters, how important eelgrass is for the incubator for marine wildlife. Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, it is the nursery, especially here in Canada and Atlantic Canada specifically. It's the nursery for all juvenile species. So from cod to halibut, you know, starting off as those little baby flounders to the zooplankton to shrimp to, oh my goodness, you name it. It usually starts in those little nursery areas, uh, estuary areas, um, and then it grows into what we enjoy on our plates uh, with the commercial fishery that fish the larger species and let's move on before we get to the damage that's been caused by the european green crab what role does it play as a carbon sink oh um it's one of those things that we actually call a nature-based solution um so nature-based solution is just kind of an umbrella term where there's things that happen in the world that happen naturally um, to help mitigate all types of things, including climate change, but it could be biodiversity loss, could be food security, could be water security, could be human health. Um, So eelgrass is a type of seagrass, um, and these meadows sequester a large amount of carbon uh, from the atmosphere, and it goes into the sediments, but also into the little um, eelgrass fronds um, or blades that are there as well. So it's actually based on research saying that it can actually take more carbon than some of the terrestrial forests, rainforests. Um, 
So it's a pretty big one. Um, it's one of the biggest ones. It's a blue carbon because it is into the ocean and the marine environments. Yeah, calling it an underwater plant hero. This might be a silly question, but I'm going to ask it. Is all eelgrass zostera or is zostera all eelgrass? So Zostera, so there's a bunch, I guess the easiest way to say for that one, there's 72 species of seagrass, but eelgrass or Zostera is the main species found in Canada. Okay. Before we get into what we see in this province, Grossmore or elsewhere, you talk about a global decline. So we can talk about European green crab here now in a second, but what are some of the other issues seeing a global decline of eelgrass? Um, I mean, with, you know, industrialization over the years, um, hundreds of years, really, climate change, um, just changes in what we do with the coastal environments. That is the main reason why it's declining. So, you know, from coastal development to land-based pollution, you know, there's lots of agriculture. So any river that runs off all of those different um, pesticides will also damage those types of environments. Physical damage, so for building wharves, um, invasive species, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and climate change. So you think about the bigger storm surges, um, the lack of ice pack, um, warming temperatures, all these things have caused a decline over the years. So they're saying roughly, there's a study in 2021 that said uh, nearly 20% of the seagrass meadows, which includes eelgrass, have been lost since 1880. And every year we lose another 1% to 2%. Is some of the decline associated with humans actually harvesting it and eating it? No, not so much. Okay. It's more just damaging it. Um, I, I mean, we, like in the back in the day, I guess if you think about what we may have used it for, um, you know, we used it as insulation, hay for horses, mulch or fertilizer. So we may have used it a little bit, but I don't think it would have been at the level, um, definitely not industrial level, that we're taking it out of the ocean at all. Is eelgrass everywhere? Um, it's in the coastal areas from like intertidal. So if you're not aware of intertidal, so it's in that place between, you know, when the um, ocean goes all the way out on low tide and all the way up. So in between there, um, if you go out on a low tide day, you'll see a little bit of eelgrass, but then it can go down as far deep as like 40 meters. So you can get some really long, uh, large meadows, as we call it. If someone refers to sea grasses as the lungs of the sea, just how much oxygen is produced? Now, I imagine that's through photosynthesis, but just how much oxygen is produced by seagrass? Oh, my gosh. That is something I do not know. Oh. I have no problem admitting that one. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that one. I know that it does sequester or take in a lot of CO2 um, or carbon dioxide, but I'm not sure how much it emits. Yeah, I read something from the Smithsonian Ocean, and that's the only reason I asked it, because I yeah. thought it was quite curious that mm-hmm. they say that one square meter of seagrass can generate 10 liters of oxygen every single day, which I thought I was would- substantial. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I do know that it can capture more carbon per kilometer squared than a terrestrial forest. Amazing stuff. Let's get to the damage we're seeing off our coast, whether it being gross morning, I know it's Placentia Bay and elsewhere, is the invasive species known as the European green crab. What are they doing? Um, so what they actually do, um, they did come over, so their larvae actually came out on vessels um, years ago. I think it was in the 90s that they first were seen in Nova Scotia, Atlantic Canada. Um, and then Dr. Bob Hooper and the group at the Bombay Marine Station in the early 2000s found them over here. I believe they started on the east coast of Newfoundland in 2007. So I think it was 2009 that Bob Hooper started to find them over here. 
And what they actually do, um, they go in and they snip um, the little fronds. Um, they don't eat them, they just snip them. Um, the problem being is that a whole meadow can actually be made up from one frond because it, it's an underwater shoot system. So it'll go in through all of the sandy areas and they all pop up. So there, there could be this massive um, meadow. So if an eelgrass goes, or an eelgrass, sorry, if a green crab goes in and snips one, it could be the one that's actually making that whole meadow. So what can be done about it? Because, you know, remarkably, we're apparently not allowed to do anything about the green crab, but if they're having and creating that kind of damage, what can actually be done unless we're going to take the green crab as much as possible out of the water? Yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, it's it's hard to stop them from coming in because it's so easy for them to spread um, with their eggs. Um, so what we've been doing with our program is working with um, Environment Canada as well as DFO, and there's a trap called a Fuki trap, which is literally made to capture European green crabs. Um, and right now what we have is just to take them out. Um, we either have to freeze them or compost them, but we have to do something that doesn't allow them to go back into the water. Um, I know there has been different projects in the past where DFOs looked at using them in the fishery, um, you know, finding other commercial values for them, but it's just really tough because of how easy it is for their eggs to spread. At what scale will we have to try to capture them to protect the eelgrass? Oh, um, that's that's a hard question because, um, I mean, I know for us anyway, we're just trying to figure out how dense they've already spread just in our gross morn area. Um, you know, with the changing climate, the other thing that the problem is is we don't have that really cold, um, icy, you know, ice-packed bays that we used to have in the winter because they actually used to um, reduce the actual spread of green crabs. But now we have this warming temperature in the oceans, um, so they're able to live over winter. Um, so that, yeah, that, that answer remains to be seen. I hope I have the answer by the end of the three years, but um, a lot of people are still trying to figure that out. Crab has been contentious and controversial in this province uh, very recently, and that's the snow crab. Can we eat the green crab? You can. Um, there's just not a lot of meat in it. Um, I know some research friends of mine, um, we would take them and then just, you know, smash them up and use them to make stock or mm-hmm. whatever for risotto or some, you know, chowder or whatever. Um, but there's really not a lot of meat in it. Um, and they're really tiny. You can get a couple that are big, but for the most part, there's there's not a lot of eat in them. <laughs> I appreciate making time. Anything else we need to know about your work, the eelgrass, green crabs, or anything else under the sun under, or, or under the water, I suppose? <laughs> Uh, you know, it is it is a partnership. So, I mean, I'm the lead marine planning and engagement corner with EAC, and all the data is actually being gathered um, with the researchers at the Atlantic Healthy Oceans Initiative, which is a new nonprofit based out of um, North Point. We call it Ahoy, nice and easy. Um, but all the data that they're getting from this research is actually going into the Ecology Action Center's uh, community-led marine spatial plan. And that plan is actually made with the community um, to look at the best ways to help manage our oceans from, you know, potential protection, restoration, say from eelgrass um, and invasive species, but also looking at how to have a really great sustainable blue economy. Um, So we're looking at the whole thing with this new atlas that we're making. So I guess the best thing is to stay tuned um, and 
you'll see kind of how all this research, research is going to play into um, how we better look after the oceans from, you know, the economic side right up to the conservation side. And in terms of staying tuned, we'd appreciate you periodically checking in with us when we learn more or just to give us updates or whatever the case may be. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, if you follow us on uh, online, so we're on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we also have websites. So the best one I'd say is to check out the Ahoy website or their Facebook and Instagram page, which is ahoi.ca. Appreciate the time, Rebecca. Thanks for this. No problem. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Rebecca Brush is the Marine Planning and Engagement Coordinator with the Ecology Action Center. Uh, that was pretty good. Uh, obviously, you know, there's so many things that we don't understand about the oceans. Right? I just talk about the basic importance of something like eelgrass and how it's being jeopardized or devastated by something like an invasive species, the bloody green crab. Let's take a break. Uh, take a break first, Dave. Uh, is that what I'm doing? Okay, we're going to take another call before the break. Apparently, let's go to line number three. Kevin, you're on the air. How are you today, Patty? How about, I suppose, you? Hey, boy, the sun is shining around this side fat. Yes, sir. Uh... I read an article there the other day. Quebec is looking for access now to uh, come across part of Labrador so they can ship some ore from uh, Quebec over to Boise, the shipping terminal there and down Seven Isles. They're already at it, but yeah, they're, they're absolutely have a huge appetite for expansion. Yeah, but uh, no, they're just looking now for access to come across. I know they had the train going down there, but uh, I read something that they're looking for access now to go to Boise. Yeah, that could very well be, but of course we share, a lot of people are loath to do any business with the province of Quebec or Hydro-Quebec, but we have a shared geographical border, number one. The Labrador Trough extends through Labrador into Quebec, so we've got some mutual interests. We just have to make sure that they're mutually beneficial. Well, I look at it as well, what about our power going across, and they wouldn't let us use their lines going across all the time there. And here they are now with the face on them to come back and look for access across hours so they can ship over. Yeah, well, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're always going to be the so-called biggest bully on the block, right? They want what they want when they want it. It's a bit of petulance. But, you know, they're going to look after their own. we just got to make sure that our slice of the pie is equal to theirs. If not, a bigger slice, given some of the implications of the Upper Churchill deal. So there's lots of redress and avenues where we can do a little bit better than we've done in the past. But Jack, Quebec's not going to be afraid, and they won't be ashamed to ask what, ask for what they want. Oh, without a doubt, but it's just up to... Uh, I'd like it to be uh, kept out into the public so we'll know what's going on and not the politicians to be hiding it. Sure, and you wanted to react to Jennifer Williams, of course, who would have nothing to do with access for mining transport. Oh, no, that's, uh, that's all Crown Lands across from there. But uh, the, uh, the Gull Island, here we are now. Well, Quebec feds are after giving them all this money to start a battery plant. Where are they going to get all that extra power? Gull Island, do you think? Well, maybe, but they're also entered into some small nuclear opportunities, so... With the thirst for energy, there, it's going to be all of those things, isn't it? You know, it's going to be offshore wind. It's going to be possible hydro expansion. Uh, and who knows whatever else under the sun, because the growth in the energy demand world is very, very real. And I don't think anyone's got one 
simple solution to how we achieve satisfying that uh, demand side. But yeah, it's going to probably be, look, don't anyone be surprised if we hear more about Gaul in the near future. I know we don't talk about it a lot around here because we've still got the yoke of muskrat terrorizing the hydro bill, which is yet to fully come to pass. But when I hear Legault and I read energy bloggers and reviewers and reporters in Quebec, they talk about it all the time. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it's out in the public up there, but uh, for some reason the politicians here seem to keep it under wraps. But anyway, Paddy, my third and final one, now the scene that we're getting through quickly, is back in the day when Danny, uh, the tobacco companies, when Danny gave his old law firm the the job of going after uh, tobacco companies to uh, get some money out of them. Do you recall that? Yeah, class action. It's happened all over North America. Some huge uh, penalties have been assigned to the tobacco companies. Massive billions. How is how is that going for us? I mean, how much are we paying the the, uh, the law firm? And I mean, where are we at with it? It seems to be like we hear nothing about this. And uh, how much is it costing us? Where are we at? I mean, did we get anything back out of it? Is it still ongoing? It's a good question. I don't know the answer. Uh, A number of years ago, we did ask that question to get very little in the way of detailed answers. But now that you put it back on the front burner, I'll pursue it again because I don't know. Thank you very much, sir. You have a great day and look after yourself. You too, Kevin. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, you know, the story regarding private for-profit personal care homes and some of the whopping big rent increases that are coming their way. One lady, of course, has a 30-day notice for an additional $450 a month. Even the association representing a variety of these uh, operators, they think it's maybe unfair. They've used the word unprofessional. It's going to be a big and growing concern. Coming up after the break is the province of seniors advocate, Susan Walsh. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, join us on line number two is the province of seniors advocate. That's Susan Walsh. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Thank you kindly. So, I mean, everything under the housing umbrella has been very troublesome in the recent past, and I would suggest for a number of years. But now what we see in the for-profit personal care homes and the rent increases that they're proposing, one example, as I mentioned, was 30-day notice at $450 additional dollars of rent. What do we know about what's happening? What are you hearing? So, you know, we've had numerous, many contacts uh, to our office around this issue by seniors, by their family members, panicked really over what might happen here. Am I going to be evicted? I don't have time to consider my options. I don't know that I'll qualify. Maybe I will. If I don't, where do I go? And I mean, Patty, what we have to remember is some of these seniors, the greatest majority of these seniors, you know, and we know there's a little over 600 impacted. That number changes regularly, of course, based on people moving in and out of the system. Um, But majority of those seniors are needing some level of care. So it's not just like, oh, go out and rent an apartment, and not to say that that would even be easy, as we know. But these people would also potentially need home support or some sort of level of, you know, care need that uh, is going to be hard to find. So, you know, which is why I issued the statement today asking the um, personal care, care home operators, can we slow this down a little bit? Can we take a little time to uh, give these people the opportunity they need to get reassessed to determine if they will be eligible? And I've had some conversation with the Department of Health and Community Services. They are aware that people will be um, looking to be reassessed, and they're committing that they're going to get that done as quickly as possible, um, which I think is great. Um, And then for the ones that may not qualify, giving them the time to figure out, well, what are the options? And so that's really the the request today. And I think 
uh, many of the personal care home operators, and, and I have had some discussion with the Quality Living Alliance for Seniors. I think that there's many personal care home operators who are going above and beyond out there. They're doing their best to help their residents who are private pay figure out the options, you know, uh, look at what uh, is available for them, certainly given them more than 30 days. So, you know, I, I want to acknowledge that. And I also want to acknowledge, and my statement did acknowledge, that we are this office is certainly supportive of the increase in the subsidy rate that was really required and i'm pleased that it occurred and frankly i think there's a lot of improvements that need to occur in the system and i think some of those uh can now be supported through the rate increase, and perhaps there's lots more support that needs to come to that uh, industry. Now, I will say that for the private operators, every single one of their input costs has gone up. Absolutely. Period. You know, insurance and mortgages and whatever food and other services and programs they provide, they cost more. So a rent increase is inevitable. So it's one thing for them to be asked to pump the brakes a little bit, maybe extend beyond 30 days for the heads up. But where do some of the more permanent solutions come? Because they're in it not only to care for our seniors, but yes, they're in it for business. They're in it to make money. They are not covered by the Residential Tenancies Act. They're covered by the Home Care Operational Standards, which does not talk about rent increases, period. Where are some of the more permanent long-term solutions that you would propose or think we should be discussing? Well, you know, Patty, that's the whole point of of this request. It's that we would slow this down to figure out how many people will, in the end of this, be negatively impacted, and are there are the options that will be available to them sufficient or not? And you know, as I said in my statement, this approach will allow us the opportunity to gather the information we'll require to determine. Is there any further intervention required? Perhaps there won't be. Perhaps once we get this all figured out um, and we, you know, people are reassessed and we, we reduce the number hopefully down to something else, maybe maybe we can look at is there an option to increase uh, eligibility for subsidy or maybe that's not necessary. Maybe the other issue is there are other options within the system, um, you know, that seniors private pay residents will be able to choose from. It may not be your first choice, unfortunately, but there are other options potentially available. And that's the assessment piece that we need to get done once this, um, you know, once we have the reassessment of the financials done uh, for these seniors. I think there are options. Uh, It's a matter of really giving the time to allow people to make some informed decisions. There's, I mean, there's obviously a lot to this, and you can, we can pick them apart one by one, and all these things have to be tended to concurrently. I know you and I have spoken about this in the past, but I really do think, you know, when we talk about this particular issue and affordable housing and some of the flimsy numbers that the government's been using on that front, a lot of this can be attended to when we move away from talking about institutional housing and we age in place. I know you've had some conversation with some of your counterparts across the country, maybe an aging in place tax subsidy that could be involved here. We've never seen anyone undertake the math exercise of here how's, how much it costs to add six hours in your own home versus a, being in a long-term get, bed or a personal home care, so or personal care home. When do we have to advance that conversation? Because I think if we, if we get that right, a lot of these other issues are less impactful, impacting fewer people. I mean, Patty, I couldn't agree with you more because what's happening is we're having conversations and is- on on specific issues, right? So this is one issue, but this this uh, the role of personal care homes is integral to the whole continuum around 
housing needs for seniors in this province. And so I, I get that they're trying to increase the uh, level of care that personal care homes provide, which is which is fine. And, and the personal care homes should be compensated uh, appropriately for that. And I'm, you know, I'm not looking at all to uh, disincentivize or create a problem for, uh, you know, private business or industry. But to your to your question, then we also do need to consider, okay, so then what happens to those people who are living in their own homes who can't get access to the supports and services they need? And so we need to move past just a home, um, you know, uh, the philosophy of make sure that there's home support in your home. It needs to become broader around um, – age-friendly communities, dementia-friendly communities, resources in communities that seniors can access to be well and access their communities and be safe in their own homes and well. So in and out of their home, in their home, in their community. And and really, that that is a view, like that's a, that's a much broader piece that I think that needs to be built into how we approach um, this whole continuum for seniors in the province. Yeah, because right now we're just kind of nibbling around the edges of that conversation. I think there's not only a uh, health and happiness and contentment upside, and yes, it does have to involve the community, but I'd be shocked if there's not massive financial savings at the same time. I, I, I agree with you. I truly believe that I, I, you know, I'm regularly meeting with seniors. I met with a group yesterday, and um you know, that is exactly the conversation we were having, that, like, seniors want to remain in their own homes for as long as they can. We have the highest home ownership in the country. I mean, th- that in itself is such a resource to the provincial government, right, that, you know, people own their own homes. But we cannot forget that they don't have the resources as they age sometimes to keep those homes up, to shovel the driveway, to mow the lawn. These are the extra supports that they require that, are, that go beyond – I can't get up my stairs or I need someone to come in and wrap my wound. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's beyond just home support. And if we don't start thinking more broadly about it, then the, 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 the impact that's happening for long-term care and personal care homes will never reduce because people will move uh, as a consequence. And we've also seen, Patty, most recently in the last number, I'd say within the last year, we and many other community organizations are receiving lots of contact from uh, seniors who are having adult children move into their homes and either abusing them or else, I'll say, creating fear for them. And as a consequence, the seniors don't, don't feel safe in their own homes and can't get the person to leave. And so that's another conversation we've recently been having with our community partners and with the provincial government around how can we protect these seniors so that they don't just say, okay, well, I'll leave my home and go into a personal care home or a long-term care or some other arrangement that's going to cost way more money for government um, because, you know, I, I have no recourse here. So there is a lot of irons in this fire, and I will say I'm really pleased I, uh, you know, working collaboratively with our community partners on the housing front, uh, I, this is not an easy solve, right? It's just not an easy solve, but there are many, many seniors who are being evicted from their apartments, um, you know, because the, the house is getting sold and um, they have nowhere to go. And, and I want people to know that that's on our radar too. Like we're, this whole housing continuum that brings in the health component as well from a housing and health perspective 
is, is a significant issue that we're looking at. No question. Last one before I let you go. And it just popped back in my mind. Uh, has there been any advancement on the issue of separating seniors upon different medical needs entering long-term care? Because, you know, for families that, that have been impacted by that, it's devastating. Not only for mom and dad or nan or pop, but for the family at large. Is there any movement on that front? Because we've got to figure that out. You know, the legislation in Nova Scotia bans that potential. So where are we? So... So as you know, our office called for a review of the long-term care and personal care home system. Government agreed to it. The committee um, has been struck. And um, then we had asked, our office had asked for a community stakeholder committee. Government agreed to that. We've had one initial meeting um, uh, with the understanding that there will be at least three during the period that the, that, uh, the expert panel is doing their work. I understand that that issue is on their radar. I can't confirm it, but I know that 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 was initially an area that the minister had committed that that panel would look at. Um, So I guess the answer to your question is tied up with what's the status of the work of the panel. Pretty much because, you know, and there's a lot to it, whether it be on the big scale of uh, financing, it's the whole P3 option, then staffing levels and monitoring and dementia wards and some of the safety issues we've seen and the not vetting of staff. I mean, there's just an endless laundry list about getting this right. Our last thoughts and last words to you, Susan. Patty, look, I'm pleased that uh, you reached out today, uh, you know, tied to the uh, statement that I released. I think that uh, my message, I hope, uh, is going to be well received by uh, the operators of personal care homes. I think the majority of them go above and beyond to do whatever they can to support their residents. It's 15% of the residents in personal care homes that are impacted by this, that are private pay. And so spread 15% amongst all of the services, you know, all of the personal care homes. Now, I grant you, not all of them have private pay. Maybe some have a disproportionately higher number than other personal care homes might have. But I'm hopeful. I know this means that uh, some... Um, personal care homes will lose a profit for an additional one or two months than they had anticipated by not instituting the increase. But I'm hoping that will be offset by the fact that the majority of their residents are getting the subsidy, so they'll get that increase fairly quickly, you know, based on the dates government had provided, and that we'll do some, you know, we'll work reasonably and collaboratively here to do what's right to give people time to figure out what to do. And you mentioned the Residential Tenancies Act, and it does not apply to personal care home but in that people would have received greater than uh, 30 days and you know this is all part of what you know my office has the ability to look at and make any determination around and I don't want to have to go down those roads I think we can work collaboratively I think that people can be reasonable and I hope that this finds uh, the right uh, response from people here here appreciate the time Susan thank you take care bye-bye Susan Walsh is the problems of seniors advocate Sean appreciate your patience sir he wants to talk about the Stephenville airport deal don't go away your voice in newfoundland and labrador's biggest conversation if you want to know what's happening in your province tune in to open line every day have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m on open line with patty daly on your vocm welcome back to the program let us go to line number one sean you're on the air good morning patty morning to you after a lot of digging and searching, I found a few documents. I believe I sent them to you. You did. I have them in front of me. Well, I have one letter that's open in front of yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, sorry about that. I got, uh, I spent 
probably four or five hours this week at the lawyer's office. Uh, I just left there this morning, so I don't get myself in trouble. But I'll start off on August 22nd. There was an environmental assessment that was released to the public uh, from World Energy. It's on page 62 of 174 pages. It outlines the laydown plans for World Energy Project. It reveals a lease that has already been signed by World Energy and the airport for the laydown space. There are no financial details of the lease, but it was now public knowledge. I know the dollar figures. Expected to start the first week of November after the environmental assessment has been released. The lease is for 48 hectares at the Stephen Mill Airport at $8,500 a hectare. $408,000 per month or $4.9 million per year. This is going to be the income for the airport or the Diamond Group of companies. August, cut me off anytime you want to ask a question, Patty, but I'm just going to go through it. Yeah, I'm waiting for you to throw some more details out there so I can, we can have a chat. Go ahead. August 24th, there was a special meeting at Council. A tax certificate was required for the sale. Town officer refused to issue the certificate because it was not in compliance with the law. The mayor threatened town officers with their jobs if the certificate wasn't issued. On August 25th, a certificate was issued. We're not sure who issued it. August 25th, the deal was signed before a commissioner votes at 4.58 p.m. Now, unless there's a sense of urgency, this airport would have had the document signed months ago. New company, public knowledge of lease rammed through. Why didn't the people know that? I've heard rumors that no one of the SAC members was allowed to have a copy of the agreement, and they were only allowed to view it under uh, strict circumstances. The, steeple, the people of Stephenville lost a valuable asset years ago the same type of way, to port, that just sold for $17 million that could have been the taxpayers in Stephenville. In a meeting at town council, Mr. Rose stated that he was elected to serve the people in the best interest of the people, the Stephenville, and the six councillors as well. Well, why would, this, why would they give away this asset that we, the taxpayers, have been paying the bills for this airport for the past 20 years to a company who starts to make $5 million a year? Why wouldn't we have kept it and given it to the taxpayers of Stephenville? And why did they write off $500,000 worth of taxes, taxpayers' money, when the Diamond Group of companies stand to make $408,000 a month, $4.9 million a year. Do you think this is in the best interest of the people? So if council and council members didn't know about the financial like they're telling me, well, this is corruption. And if they did know and voted for this, they should all resign because this is not in the best interest of the people of the people of Stephenville. So are you saying, Patty? Why is it? Go ahead. Are you suggesting that? Well, let's say if they knew that this was a proposal being made by John Risley's group for a laydown space, if they knew it should have been splintered out of the airport deal, is is that the suggestion? Well, knowing that we're going to get $5 million a year, you know, like for, for land at the airport, the airport has been in a struggle financially, as everybody knows. I mean, especially the taxpayers of Stephenville. I mean, we've been paying for it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So there's knowledge. I mean, why would uh, the council, three or four members that I spoke to, said that they were unaware, they were aware of the laydown area, but they were unaware of the financial numbers. So... Who did this deal? I know who did the deal. It was done between Lou Short. That's a little later in my conversation. 
um, or the airport manager. But I mean, why would they give away an asset that's now going to make $5 million a year? And why did we write off $500,000 worth of taxes when he's going to get $408,000 a month? This goes on to the taxpayers of Stephenville. We have paid to keep this asset open for 20 years, Patty. I know. So do you know whether or not there was any conversation between uh, World Energy GH2 and the airport authority prior to the sale being closed? Do you know if any of the councillors had been approached by Risley's group about laydown and the potential revenue stream it could create? They had a meeting. Um, the deal, uh, this was exposed August, the, the, the contract was signed. The, the meetings were in February of 23. And it was signed in March of 23. This deal was signed in March of 23. And nobody in Stephenville knows about the numbers. But council knew about it, or I don't know if they know the financial. They're telling me they didn't. Uh, they didn't know the numbers, but I mean, it's public knowledge now. But my point is, is that why would you give away a company for $6.76, but now it's going to make $5 million a year when the taxpayers of Stephenville have paid it? Uh, allowed nobody at the town uh, or at the SAC board was allowed to see the contract. They were told what was in it, right? SAC members said they haven't seen it. Uh, taxes and, and the airport was sold, and the taxes haven't been done for 2021 and 2022. So if there's taxes owed for that, who's going to pay it? Fair question. I mean, I can't answer any of your questions because I have no involvement, but I can certainly invite the mayor back on to answer them on your behalf. Yes, and, and uh, like, you know, in the last year, uh, the director of engineering has resigned, the director of municipal services has resigned, the chief administrator, administrative officer has resigned, the mechanic foreman has resigned, all in the last year. Uh, one of them told me, most toxic place he's ever worked in, I've sent these letters and documentations. Like I said, I've been, I've spent, I've got $11,000 spent in legal fees so far. I spent four hours at the lawyers to make sure that all this is true and documented and searched so I don't get in trouble. I've sent all of this to the regional manager of municipal affairs, the director of municipal support, the Tony Wakeham's office. Patty, I've lived in this town for 55 years, and I'll fight for the people and let them know what's going on, because somebody has some explaining to do. <laughs> we'll invite the mayor on, and hopefully he can do that as soon as possible. I appreciate the information, Sean. Yeah, and I just one more thing, Patty. Uh, I did a, uh, I think I might have mentioned it the other day, but I wanted to put a uh, special thank you out to the Dynamic Occupational Health Services uh, that came to Stephenville. I know that council and that couldn't bring in any medical team, but we brought in a uh, medical, myself and my team built a medical building with nine offices and three bathrooms, uh, and they're set up at 43 West Street with uh, three NERC practitioners and uh, a couple of doctors. So it's a new medical service that we're brought into Stephenville trying to uh, lighten the burden on the medical system, you know. I'd like to congratulate them, but I mean, Something got to be done. The people of Stephenville, I mean, why is this big asset given away? This is, is totally ridiculous, you know. And now it's out there for the public to know. It's not uh, hearsay. It's all documented. There's, I wouldn't be saying it online and get myself in trouble, you know. I appreciate the information and good luck with the clinic. Thanks for this, Sean. 
Okay, have a good day, Patty. You Thank too. you for your time. My pleasure. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Winston's in the queue, wants to respond to something they heard in the conversation we have with Jennifer Williams at Hydro. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Winston. You're on the air. Yes, good day, Patty. Good day to you. Yeah, um, I listened to Jennifer Williams uh, on there earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, she mentioned that Newfoundland Hydro is looking at all the options for uh, power needs and generation and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I didn't hear mention at all was the the option of looking at efficiency as a power source. Meaning what? Well, um, efficiency, uh, to give an example, whether you're talking an office building or a, a residential home or whatever, um, our, our, our biggest uh, needs in the province is for uh, electric heat. And um, traditionally, still, most of the houses and buildings on, on the island is, uh, uses conventional resistance uh, baseboard heater type. And um, so if, if you and I are neighbors and uh, we got similar houses and uh, I put in uh, uh, an efficient electric heating source that reduces my heating demand by 50%, then that means another house could be built with a similar efficient unit, and there's no overall increase in the load. Fair enough. So, you know, to make your home more energy efficient, you know, you start with the basics, controlling the draft, update your insulation and windows and the like. But my fundamental question, and don't take this the wrong way, is what would Jennifer Williams and Hydro have to do with that portion of the conversation? A lot of these efficiency issues have, you know, very specific federal and provincial government pots of money. Take Charge NL, for instance, is involved in those efficiency-type conversations. What role do you think Ms. Williams should play in that role, in that discussion? Well, first of all, the Take, take Charge program is basically a joke as to providing any meaningful efficiency. Uh, They they spend a a few million dollars a year, which I think most of the people think it's it's coming from the generosity of the power companies. It's it's a part of the power bill that you and I and everyone uh, uh, pays in, and they take a small portion of that, and they feed it back to uh, Canadian Tire and some of the stores so that you can get efficient lights and this sort of thing. It's a a very minor uh, impact on heating efficiency. And um, the biggest source of uh, heating efficiency is using uh, heat pump systems that have been around now for decades. Of course, we're seeing a a pickup in in this in residential units, but um, um, 25 years ago, um, I was involved and uh, uh, supplied some uh, units for commercial buildings because the uh, uh, people, for, from a business point of view, they could see the advantage of reducing their power needs uh, 50% or more, and it was cost-effective with, without uh, 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 promotions. It, it was just the right thing to do. Uh, Newfoundland, uh, uh, there's a number of uh, large commercial buildings where they've gone with ground source heat pumps that uh, reduces uh, uh, the heating loads uh, by 50% and more. And uh, 
Um, I mean, this is recognized by climate change experts uh, as a big factor in, in meeting climate change needs uh, to uh, reduce uh, power needs. And, um, I mean, if, if you follow what's going on in the uh, European uh, Union and other, other countries, uh, uh, there's big moves in that direction. And uh, so we were moving in that direction decades ago. And uh, a couple of years ago, it was decided that we had such a surplus power from Muskrat Falls that we didn't even need to do that. We could go back and um, just continue using the old uh, inefficient uh, baseboard eaters that I think the first installation of baseboard eaters was in 1917 uh, when William Coker down in Port Union was using it. Yeah, fair enough. And I don't dispute anything you said there. Uh, my only question would be, how do I even incorporate that into a conversation with Jennifer Williams? Because her organization is in re- response of demand and, you know, consequentially where the supply comes from. Because energy efficiency, for all the right reasons, like for my family, we upgraded insulation and windows, installed some mini splits in an effort to make the home tighter and less costly to, to heat. So a lot of that seems like an individual responsibility to me i'm just curious and this is based in straight up honest question is how do you think i should incorporate that my next uh, opportunity to speak with jennifer williams because what role well, do you think another problem is you can go back and look at uh, i think it was 2008 uh, before well before muskrat falls nova scotia got into it big time uh with uh, uh well wind energy for one thing uh, but uh with efficiency uh, uh to promote um, uh, efficient uh, heat pump systems for commercial and residential buildings with uh, not only saving energy, but to bring down peak demand. And let me give you an example. I done a presentation and actually done my own setup uh, that was uh, uh, accepted and and praised very highly by Newfoundland Hydro at the PUB board, where uh, uh, we, we we installed uh, heat pump systems. This was in a hard 2000 house that was already insulated, and and, and uh, so uh, that house uh, was using. And, and when, the, when the test was done, the, the outdoor night temperature was a minus 8 Celsius, which is uh, a typical winter, January, February, uh, temperature in the nighttime. Um, so it, the, the house had baseboard eaters, and it had uh, uh, municipality pumps installed. So uh, what, what we did, uh, monitors on, on the heating uh, units, and uh, so uh, the baseboard eaters were, were uh, using, uh, they, they had a capacity of 17 kilowatts that if your system is operating on night back, uh, setback thermostats, these would come on in the morning and they would bring on uh, 17 kilowatts of heat. Uh, so th- that, of course, is what happened. And then uh, uh, the unit was switched over from the, from, the, from the typical baseboard heater to the heat pumps, and uh, the heat pumps used somewhere between 6 and 7 kilowatts. 
So you, 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 it was a tremendous reduction. And the, the methodology that we used, I mean, this is still on record from the PUB. It was highly praised by Newfoundland Hydro, or, or sorry, Newfoundland Light and Power, as to the way this was done. And not only that, uh, the units were properly installed and they were what you call cold climate units that are, that are highly efficient. Uh, there's a lot of junk mini splits on the system uh, in, in the market. And if people are not aware, uh, I think it was more than a decade ago that Nova Scotia set up um, a list, and you can go in and see which units are approved that have high efficiency standards for our climate. There's none of that in Newfoundland. Um, so people are, are being conned lots of times who are getting poor quality units that don't operate at lower temperatures. And um, so with, with the power company, they have to make a decision that, first of all, do you accept the, the approach that efficiency is a power source? Now, it, it sort of seems contradictory that efficiency, uh, you know, is not a generator. But uh, it reduces power consumption and power demand on the system. And... Uh, so that that is something uh, that hasn't been mentioned. They they talked about the muskrat falls. It wasn't considered beforehand, and now they're saying they're looking at all the power options. And yet, I never heard a mention, and I haven't seen it in none of the media reports uh, that they're doing an analysis as to how beneficial that approach could be. Points well made and taken this morning, Winston. I appreciate your contribution. Uh, I'd also like to comment on uh, um, the generator, the 150 megawatt generator they're talking about for Holyrood. It'll have to be a quick one because I'm late for the news, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I think this is just, uh, uh, it, it probably would be needed, but uh, uh, I think they should, should call a spade a spade and recognize that uh, the um, reliability of Musrat Falls is not reliable it may not be reliable and so there's going to spend a billion dollars or so uh, keeping the old units there that are 40 or 50 years old or more uh, running and so there will be a general plan to replace these and they were looking at three 150 watt megawatts which essentially uh, would replace all of Holyrood but they'll do it stepwise and 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 put in 150 initially and uh, they're already working. She never mentioned it this morning, but they're already working on the design plan for this. So there, there's money and effort and time being spent on doing the layout for putting this unit in, mm -hmm. even though it hasn't been approved by PUB. And um, just one more point. Very quickly, Winston. I really have to go, sir. Okay, so right now, Memorial University, they're, they're looking at electric, it's out on tender right now. That's right. Electrify their, their um, steam generators out there. Yep. And, uh, and so you're, you're, you're using uh, uh, technology uh, that was around in um, Sir William Coker's day. Um, it's, 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 it's the old style resistance eat to generate hot water to feed their buildings. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, oh boy, what. And, uh, I'm going to have to jump in here now, sir, and, and leave it at that for this morning, but you're always welcome.
Okay, thank you. Thanks, Winston. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Dawn, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, I called last week with regards to um, increase in personal care homes as a result of the subsidy increase. And you said call back if uh, there was any, you know, kind of a development or update. Sure. So that's why I'm calling you this morning. Um, so my mom was, is at Kingsway, and uh, just to for those who might have not have heard, a memo was slipped under her door that um, her room rate was going up uh, $457, 14% in 30 days. Um, no notification. Um, that was how it uh, was presented. So there was a meeting last night at Kingsway of all private pay residents, um, my mom falling under that. And uh, the CEO who had delivered the memo was present. And um, basically the bottom line, there was no empathy and it was an emphatic no to extend the notification period or to reconsider the room rate. The logic was um, they take... um, the mandated rates that government mandate for subsidies per whatever the level one, level two, or level two enhanced, and then they add a premium. So their room rates went up because the mandated rates went up. So they're blaming government for the increase that was imposed on these personal care um, care home residents. But I guess one of the things... Um, There was a health accord, um, the blueprint of summaries of implementation of recommendations that was delivered in February of 2022 to Premier Andrew Fury and the then Minister of Health and Community Service, John Hagee. And it is noted within this own, the government's own document, this blueprint, that Newfoundland and Labrador is one of the few provinces without legislation specific to long-term care and care of the elderly. A modern legislative framework, acts and regulations is needed for home care, supportive housing for seniors, personal care homes, and long-term care facilities. So I, since you've been on the air, and I'm not sure it wasn't on the news there, the senior advocate issued a statement. She's finally come out and said something, and I applaud that we have finally heard from Susan Walsh. She has asked that these private pay, uh, she's asked that they um, pause this rate increase for the next 90 days until it can be assessed. So I applaud um, what the senior advocate came out with this morning. But I guess my, um, and I echo some of Paul Lane's comments from yesterday, this is the most vulnerable segment of our province. And um they're, they don't fall, like I mentioned, under the Resident Tendency Act. But I don't think they need to recreate the wheel here, Patty. But Health Minister Tom Osborne, they can amend the pro- provincial pe- uh, personal care home program operational standards. If you go on the website, that was last reviewed 
revised in April of 2007. That was 16 years ago. If government can dictate nutrition and food standards, such as they have to approve the personal care home's two-week menu, why can't they amend that standard to, these are just some options, implement a room rate agreement in which personal care homes, they sign it with the uh, resident coming in and say, this is how much your room is for the next you know, 12 months. And of course, if the level of care changes, then the agreement is null and void and you make a new one maybe put notification period in there or maximum increases there is documentation in place that this could easily be amended to and their own document health accord document that was put forward suggests that this is what is required Look, there's got to be a way to settle this because if there is no attention to rent increases in the home care operational standard and it does isn't covered by the Residential Tenancies Act, there's all co- sorts of opportunities to amend both, right? So it's got to move beyond, like, even if you put it under the, the traditional Residential Act, that still allows for rent increases. It just extends the amount of time and notice uh, for a given from one month to six months. That's not going to change anything because it's still going to be an affordability matter. So whether or not that inc- includes some evaluation of input and operational costs and some sort of cap associated with rent increases, I don't know. But the current landscape is the wild, wild west. It is the wild, wild rest, west. You were correct. And I guess the thing is, if, um, and I mean, they told it reassessment, reassessment. The reassessment uh, for most of the residents in Kingsway was done. It's a newer home, was done within the past six months. It's based on 2022 T4s. As anyone knows, unless you had a reassessment of your T4, that's not going to change mid-year for most people. That That's what they're basing these assessments on. Yep. Reassessment is just, we know the threshold did not go up that much for the assessment. So they are advising us to put more on an already tax service NL to do these reassessments for these residents who we know if they have a small survivor pension or their own pension are not going to qualify. So we are wasting time and resources. And that's not going to happen anyway. There's little to no chance that that's going to happen. But that's what they want us to yeah, do. Yeah, they might and, want all kinds of things. But, I but could... the health minister said that this is, and I heard that, and I think Paul Lane alluded to yesterday, that this was going to pick up, uh, an, you know, would pick up a, signa- a significant n- a number of more um, people affected in personal care homes. Mm-hmm. I was in a room last night, and not one of them was picked up. <laughs> They were all over that threshold, just as my mother is. But they could take – the thing is, those who are subsidized at least get to keep a small siphon, be it $150 for personal items. But those who are private pay, they could take every copper, and they don't even get to keep that monetary $150, which subsidized residents would get, mm-hmm. nor prepaid funeral. So my thing is, if you are just above that threshold and all you need to be is a dollar over that threshold and you do not qualify, so 
put a mechanism in that those who are, who are within, you know, a certain percentage of that threshold, that they get to keep $150 or whatever that number may be. Um, it's a good I place to start. a lot of people falling through the cracks here, and I just want to keep it going because I think serious change needs to happen. We basically been told by Kingsway is like it, lump it, or get out. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, <laughs> it's a good start. No empathy. Un- understood. Right. It's a good start with the $150 related issue, and you're welcome to keep it going on this program. We actually had the seniors advocate on earlier to talk about exactly this. I appreciate the update, Don. And one last thing. No one in that room was going to see any sort of T4 reassessment that changed the water on the beans. They're on a fixed benefit. You know, that's just not really a thing. I appreciate the time. You're always welcome. Thank you. You're welcome, Don. Alrighty. Bye bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, carbon capture and storage. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Leslie James is professor and former Chevron chair in petroleum engineering in the Department of Process Engineering at Memorial University and heads up the High Burning Enhanced Oil Recovery Laboratory and joins us on line one. Good morning, Dr. Leslie James. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for making time. How about you? How are you doing? I am great. Lovely fall day. Yeah, absolutely. And given the time crunch, this might be carbon capture and utilization conversation part one. Let's, let's start. Patty, I was going to ask you that. I would love to have a clean energy time that we could talk about all aspects of clean energy on a regular basis. We not can, only me, but there's lots of professors that would love to. We could do it weekly. I'm not kidding you. Let's start with the basics. Look, this is going to be a big part of the federal campaign. Axe the tax, carbon tax versus tech. Let's start with the basics of carbon capture. Number one, how does it work in its simplest terms? The simplest terms are that we want to, step one, capture the carbon. So when we're talking about capture car- capturing the carbon, we're talking mostly carbon dioxide, but there are other forms of greenhouse gases as well that we'd want to capture. Um, so how do we capture that? Well, there's things like direct air capture, but we're only dealing with about 400 parts per million in the atmosphere. Then there are the large scale or, you know, exhaust from, from essentially combustion engines. So that could be natural gas, uh, you know, turbine. It could be a diesel turbine. Of course, all of our cars, etc. Now, mobile sources are, of course, hard to capture. You know, we can't go around essentially with a, a poop bag on the, on the end of our car uh, like we used to with horses. But, um, you know, what can we do for these large scale? Well, we need to take the carbon and the carbon dioxide from that stream and make a pure stream of carbon dioxide. There's, there's two reasons we want to do that. One, we don't need to store all the other stuff. So we're, or, or you, you know, like most of what's in the smokestack, for instance, will actually be nitrogen. Um, there'll also be some oxygen that's coming through as well. So, you know, that's fine going into the atmosphere. So let's take out what we need to, which in this case is carbon dioxide. We can do that a couple ways. We can, you know, put it in contact with a liquid that it wants to go into. So these are, tend to be aiming solutions. Um, we'll contact it with lots of surface areas, so we'll have the gas going in one direction, the liquid going in the other, and we'll essentially, you know, that CO2 will preferentially go over to the amine solution. Then we heat it up a little and, and, and get a pure CO2 stream. That's been on the go for, oh, decades now and used, in, like I said, in big industry. Um, we can also adsorb it. So... What we're doing there is, going to, again, looking for high surface area contact. 
Um, but instead of into a liquid, um, we, we by itself, we could have a liquid embedded into a, a really high surface area solid. So we're talking, you know, there, there's different types. We could use a bioadsorbent. We can use um, metal organic frameworks. So Dr. Kelly Hobble, Dr. Mike Katz are working in that. Um, and there we're looking for the interaction between the CO2 and the, the solid surface. So what Kelly is doing is actually using waste as a feedstock, so bio-waste from either the fish fishing industry or the forestry industry, and she's making really, really high surface area carbon, uh, essentially, and that, that the CO2 wants to stick to. So that's the capture side. <laughs> I don't know if one process or another works better or is more efficient, but I guess the big question that we're going to need to understand is, does it actually work as advertised? Because when I'm told by industry in particular that they can capture about 80 to 90%, and then I read a report recently about some of the 15 flagship carbon capture projects that are ongoing, the numbers aren't anywhere near that. So I guess the, the very base question is, does it work as advertised? Patty, efficient, process efficiency is always a challenge. Mm -hmm. So, so we can capture, so technically we can capture 99% of the CO2 in our amine system. But to make it that efficient, it's going to be super, super expensive. Mm -hmm. So it's a trade-off. So we really got a trade-off on how much we capture and the efficiency and versus how much we're going to spend to do it. And is the 60% at a lower price or the 80% at a lower price better than going for the 99.9% pure um, at a much, much higher cost and energy. Yeah, well, I guess the straight-up cost-benefit analysis of how much we catch, capture versus let go, what that means for the environment, and how much it costs for the installation of these systems. So, Absolutely. I'll get you to respond to this. You know, in some corners, they will say that carbon capture is something that the industry likes so they can continue to work on their fossil fuel projects versus being forced to reduce their emissions on their own accord, whether it be with different types of fuels, different types of blends, moving away from extraction period. What do you say to people who th think that this is an, an industry-driven issue versus a scientific endeavor? <laughs> oh, you're asking me to get political, Patty. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, it, it's, I mean, it's a complex challenge, bottom line. We could, you know, bottom line is how many of us want, so, so if we didn't need and want as much fossil fuels uh, and the demand decreased, we wouldn't have as much supply, right? Bottom line. Uh, but we still all complain when the prices go up at the pump, don't we? Because we're all driving our cars. That we do. So apart from that, I mean, yes, it's an industry problem, but industry, industry generally, from what I've seen, wants to be a good citizen. Um, you know, we're all engine. All companies have engineers working for them. We're all... You know, we have an ethical obligation to ensure that we're working towards the best solution and the safest solution. Um, so, so again, it's complex. I mean, if we didn't have the need for fossil fuels, I would love if we never, if we never needed oil and gas. Uh, and but 
we still, you know, when you look at all stats, it's all pointing to the, the, the continued demand, at least for the foreseeable future. Now, it's a decreasing, so the slope changes. Uh, so it's a decreasing demand as we're able to increase other cleaner energy, which is fantastic. But it takes all of it. Yeah, and the slope as it changes where whenever peak is, still some of the highest contributors and the highest emitters will be still be the ones in demand. So we might change our own individual behaviors, but heavy industry making cement and that's not going to change in the foreseeable future. So the heavy emitters will still be a big component of the graph when it starts to slope the other way. Absolutely. Dr. James, the time is really betraying me here today. I've got a thousand things I want to discuss regarding this issue. We didn't even get into the concept of storing it offshore or in an a saline aquifer or a salt mine. But can we? I know, Patty. Can we set something up for next week? Sure. Okay. That would be wonderful. I'll send you an email. And I really appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. James. Uh, Dr. Leslie James, process engineer at Mon. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Rosalind. Rosalind, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Okay, thanks. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I just wanted to, my main goal for today is to start a realistic discussion within the community, uh, meaning the whole island, really, in regards to the news of two males in a van trying to lure children into the vehicle at the school where my child goes, Newtown Elementary. I spoke to a parent this morning on the street who's one of the children that actually spoke with these guys. So I just, first of all, want to let everyone know, because the whole man in a van kind of thing is kind of a joke in a lot of ways to a lot of people. They don't make anything of it because people have been saying that for years. This actually happened. This happened. I also spoke with the school this morning to find out, you know, what's going to be different today. Now, the school is great. They're safe in the school. They said that um, the police have ensured extra uh, patrol there and they have extra supervision on the playground. I was thinking of keeping my child home this morning because last night I didn't know, you know, is this being taken seriously? Um, if there was a new virus, an epidemic, and we didn't know, I'd keep her home. Um, but I fear that there's an epidemic of ignorance around this issue here. And Just very quickly, Rosalind, did you say that someone at the school spoke to the guys that were in the van? This little girl was at, by the was was by the van. Was told that um, we know your parents or, or your parents. What and, and and hurry up! We don't have all day. This is what was said to the child. I oh, it was to said to mom. the child, not to an adult who confronted them or approached them. No, 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 no. Okay, the child. Okay. Yeah, we don't have all day. They said <laughs> you got to come with us. Um, so I just want everyone to know that, that this really did happen. This is not a rumor. This this actually did happen. Um, so basically what I wanted to say is that it's real. we got to take it seriously. You know, the, the stance of the school basically this morning, and I did tell them I was going to be calling in, uh, was that the kids know what to do now. They need to put it in the back of their minds. So that's okay. You know, they don't want to hype. They don't want to. Parents and as a community, we can't put this to the back of our minds. Um, 80% of, as of 2017, 80% of Ontario schools have surveillance uh, to help with, you know, this kind of thing. We hope that we don't want to just end up with a video of a child being taken. Uh, but I really believe it's a matter of time here. Um, we're very relaxed about the whole thing. And uh, it, it can happen here and it will happen. The next time, you know, any child really normally would be put off by a van with me and asking them to get in, you know. But... 
have tried to take kids out of this province, 14-year-old recently. The next time it could be a, a, a car with a senior and a woman and a child. Is a child going to recognize that as danger? So basically what I want to say is that we have to we have to not keep it in the back of our minds. We need to let them know that someone that looks like a grandma or a poppy or a mom or a kid, you know, doesn't mean they're safe. A lot of kids here, too, are taught culturally. My kids were, and I had to kind of backtrack on it, that respect for adults. You don't, you know, you don't uh, disrespect adults. You listen to adults. And my child, I remember talking to her and asking her before, you know, if this person stopped and would you listen to, well, mommy, I don't want to be rude to a grown-up. People need to tell their kids it's okay. If you offend a person, it's okay to do that to be safe. And if a grown-up stops and talks to your child, anyone with any sense is not going to stop in a vehicle and try to talk to a child and get them to come over to the car this day and age. You know, it's just it's just not something that, that should happen. Um, and I think that, you know... We just have to really talk to our kids. A lot of us will say, you know, uh, okay, well, stay close to home. Don't go far. Uh, Come in before dark or whatever. And we need to have a more serious conversation. There should be conversations with our kids with no distractions. Sit down. Really talk to them. Make sure they're listening. Make sure they understand. They're not just hearing this random, oh, be careful, don't talk to strangers. We need to sit down and we need to have a discussion. And we really need to know that they understand that um, a lot of times – danger can be disguised as someone that looks very trustworthy absolutely you know the whole bit about you you don't want to be rude to a senior or an Mm -hmm. adult i totally understand that concept but then you're going to have children who at the exact same time don't want to be rude but they're carefree and could be very easily tricked with a puppy or a candy or who knows what so look people can do as they see fit and, and construct the conversation or discussion with their own children or in school however we think is best but when my kids were small you know some of the basics we had is we had a code word like if i had to have someone pick you up or drive you home from hockey or something like that we had a built-in word that if they don't know it then you just go the other way and find an adult yeah exactly and you're supposed to scream fire don't just scream kids scream on the playground scream fire and scream i don't know this person and never ever ever let someone take you somewhere else never net if you do get never you know let that happen and i know it can't be on the children children are not going to be able to keep themselves safe that's why they have parents that's why they have a community my biggest concern is that people will you know this happened on my street to a child i know very well um if this happened somewhere out in town somewhere, would I be aware? Would I understand? Would I just see it in the news and not make anything of it? That's my concern. These guys are on wheels. These people are on wheels. These guys can go anywhere on the island. And the further you go out around the bay, I know because I grew up there, you're even more like, oh, yes, ma'am. Oh, I can help you. You know what I mean? You're very polite and you're taught to respect your elders. What I want to say as well, just a couple of points if I have time. Um, just in general, and people probably know this, but it is close to home. If it's in Newfoundland, it's close to home. We do need surveillance cameras. Like that should, 2023, that should be done. It should be done. One camera in one fo- even that area where these guys were parked on a path behind the school. Um, it just so happened that, that we didn't have an Amber Alert yesterday, but it could have just as easily. If these guys are this blatant, um, 
what's next? You know, is there going to be a car with a kid and a grandma and they're going to get somebody? But So people should avoid posting identifying information of their kids online. Sometimes things are public on Facebook and stuff. You know, be careful what you put out there. Um, people go around when the schools are out. You'll see more creepy people, honestly, out around, driving around the morning when the kids are at the bus stops. I've seen it. Today, every one of the parents were with their kids this morning, and we're all going to pick them up at the bus stop. Um, but that's the original, you know, novelty, not novelty, but that's the original fear kind of thing. But we need to make sure our kids, when they're not with us, um, they have to have boundaries clearly. Sit down, tell them that you can't go past here. Do this. Go to this house if this happens. When you have your kids here, you know, as people are so relaxed. You see little kids with bicycles so small that they, they, they look like they should have training wheels. I see them going down the road. It's almost dark by themselves. Like... The kids should be supervised in malls. Public washrooms, I've had so many people I know personally, my my nephews, that have been approached in public washrooms at a mall. Um, some kids know to get out. Some kids don't. Some kids don't have a voice. They don't know how to speak out for themselves. And, you know, check your references carefully. Don't trust a person because your neighbor trusts them. Don't trust some, you know, don't, don't, don't use your, adults have to be very keen and not too slack about this, you know. Don't put your child's name on their shirt. Don't, don't put, you know, we can do things to help, uh, but we really have to stick together as a community and, and really sit down with our kids and really make sure that they understand. And uh, I remember on Oprah a while ago, they, they did this um experiment where they had these kids and the parents were aware and they had these people going around trying to see what are the kids going to do if we do this or if we try this tactic most of the kids went along the parents were shocked Look, it's not that it can't happen here. You're absolutely right. And it's not about, you know, scaring our kids half to death so they're no. unable to just be social beings yeah. and do what they're doing exactly. and live their lives. And yeah. so I, I, I appreciate the sentiment here that real conversations need to happen. And just quick, like no one ever approached my boys, but there was a story when they were small that made me sit down with them and say, here's what we need to talk about. And so the, the funny little code word thing we had going was uh, if someone says, come with me or your dad asked me to do this for you or something as I told them to ask whoever what's for supper and if they didn't if they didn't say spaghetti there was something wrong yeah and I hope everybody that's listening right now will pass that along because if it saves one child you know if it saves someone uh, you know then it's worth it there has to be we are the ones that are watching out for our kids our school's taking care of them while they're in school Um, but but anybody that's hell-bent on making a lot of money by let's just let's just face it by child trafficking and taking a child obviously they're not going to stop and think about anything but themselves they're not going to stop and think about anything but money and opportunity you know little kids like i mentioned with little training wheel bikes pick them up with one arm bike and all and put them in a van no one will know anything if that's kids out by themselves they won't know for hours and even then they'll probably think oh i'm sure they're fine you know it can happen here and where would someone go where where people have their guard down the most now to to take kids will be here you could be right it's scary to even think about as a parent but it's worthwhile discussion to have whether it be mm-hmm. the community at large in school at daycare and you're at your family dinner table wherever you think is the best place for it i would imagine it starts at home to be really yeah, pragmatic about it i appreciate the time this morning rosalind thank you 
Thank you very much. Hopefully surveillance will be put in. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Thank you. Have a great day. The very same to you. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Traumatic discussion, but it's a real one. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, housing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John's Centre. He's leader of the party. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. I just want to talk about, I guess, the profound disappointment and frustration I felt that basically had my own suspicions confirmed uh, that the instead of 750 new housing units that the government has announced, that only 11 have actually been built. And I guess from my point of view is that I don't know how many times I've been on your show talking about housing, uh, but it's been numerous for over the last few years. I, I'm just thinking for all the times we've been helping people and trying to find a place and assuming, okay, it's getting better and find that the reason we're finding it still so difficult is because really I would have to say the we were misled. And I'm, I'm not just upset for me. I'm, I'm more upset for the people we try to help. And, and we have to basically always put in the caveat that we can't guarantee you a place, but we're going to do our best to help. And the other part of this is that earlier this week, we asked for an, a, an emergency debate on housing. And we actually, I had actually some some ideas from based on my visit last week up in Hamilton Avenue, uh, Hamilton, Ontario, sorry. And yet, not one of the government side got up to support to support the motion, which would have meant we could have had gone ahead with that debate, but we didn't. And instead, um, we've. And now I'm wondering if this is the reason why. But I, I'm I, I I'm so profoundly disappointed. So profoundly uh, upset because of of, of the you know the people that now now I guess the people out there seeking housing seniors the newcomers the uh, the international students the people sleeping in tents the people sleeping in um, in in shelters uh, it, it this is. This is basically, it's been a failure. It's a failure of all these people. It is. There's anyway. a bit of context. We had invited the Social Development Minister, Paul Pike, on the show this morning to dig into these housing numbers, and I will dig into them deep uh, off the top of the show tomorrow. Whatever we're supposed to be looking at, things like a housing continuum, housing options versus actual houses, I mean, this is the bamboozlement of all time. So... We're told 750 homes have been built and all that kind of stuff. Turns out the real number, 11. So now all of a sudden I'm supposed to consider something a housing option that's currently under design, under consideration, yet to be built, not a single stick on the ground, no pouring of concrete for foundation. So what are we talking about here? This is government creating a whip for their own tail because this there's a long way from 11 to 750. It's look. I, 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 and I used to hear the term options. I always said, okay, that's not uh, that's not houses, but okay, maybe uh, you'll give you, you try to give people the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, we've got people sleeping in tents because they don't have housing options, let alone uh, uh, actual housing. Um, and at the same time, I think you know what uh, we I've been calling this a crisis for a while, and it's been growing, Patty, since even last year when I was first helping people who are. Sleeping up in Pippi Park—that was new. That was a new twist, and now it's grown. 
So at some point, I think, you know, what you're doing is what government is doing and, and is setting people up for disappointment. Because if I if I were listening to this and I was a person seeking, I would say I would be thinking, well, OK, there's hope here that it's going to be um, it's going to come uh, soon. I've asked I've asked in the House, when can the people that say in shelters, sleeping tents expect to be transitioned into a um, into a, a housing and have not had that question answered. The, and the other thing is you talked about a continuum of supports. Interesting thing about this. I, I, I had a, a good insight when I visited Hamilton, Ontario, and I met with Indwell. And it's, it's a, a housing organization that basically sets up community supports uh, and, and creates a, a relation, a, a, a wraparound services, builds on relationships, it's a fantastic model. In back in August 24th, when uh, when Minister Pike, I invited him to tour uh, a, a section of my uh, my district, and the question I asked then, and this is what I'm uh, uh, so key to me is, how do you keep people who are difficult to house safely housed, and also make sure that other people are able to uh, to to uh, feel safe in their neighborhoods, and. What I was looking for is a continuum of service, uh, something that allows that per, uh, that uh, that people who need housing have the supports they need. I don't think that exists quite the way that I saw it exist in Indwell. Uh, or better yet, I last night I attended the the co-op general meeting, and we learned like again with the Cooperative Housing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, and. It's about setting up like like a land trust. I think there's a solution there that they could have they could have gone uh, much further, uh, done much further than what we saw in this uh, uh, news day. And the last point, we visited a modular um, home, uh, modular uh, a volumetric modular home plant up there that could turn out they're going to have 30 houses built within a month that they just uh, preassembled. So I'm thinking here, there are solutions if they want to actually have actual units. There are solutions, but basically to 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 mislead with these statements and give the impression that somehow we've got 750 in this in the in this market like from last year, and we're going to get another 850 is is wrong in my part. And now I've got to wonder, well, what does this 850 really mean? Is it actually going to be units? Because I haven't seen I I, I haven't seen a decrease in people looking for homes. I've seen it increase. And that is wrong. That's putting my no, just putting my office under pressure. We just can't keep up. But more importantly, the people we're trying to help. Uh, at some point, we know we're not going to get them where they need to be, and that is tragic. Yeah, good work by Rob Antle. I don't mind giving shout-outs when due. So I'll just compare these quotes. More than 750 new public housing options have been advanced over the last two years. There are 750 units being built now. We introduced 700 new units that are, are currently being built. The answer, 11. Six in Gander, one in Peterview, uh, four in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Then they talk about 72 units in Pleasantville under development. Uh, another 32-unit social housing complex under development. Uh, under development, four two-story apartment buildings constructed with eight units. Of, I mean... How can 11 be the actual outcome number when they said clearly more than 750 new public housing options had been advanced over the last two years? I mean, let's just get down to, you know, regular Joe language. We're building or they're built. They're the only two yeah. words we should be the words we should be using here. You know, none of these continuums and advanced and like, I don't even know what any of that means. And I'm not the dumbest kid in the room. Uh, very quickly, Jim, last word to you before I sneak in one more. And very quickly... And it's not just St. John's Centre, it's not just St. John's, but I can tell you right across the province, uh, sure. I've heard from people. And you know what? That 
that's it's not just failing my constituents; it's failing uh, everyone in the in this province looking for a place to live. I appreciate anyway, thank the, you, Patty. I appreciate the time, Jim. Thank you. Take care. It's Jim Dean, member for St. John Centre, leader of the party. Final word, line four. Ryan Cleary, you're on the air. Uh, morning, Patty. Um, to you and your listeners, thanks for squeezing me in. Uh, I've just got a quick public service announcement, if you don't mind, Patty. Uh, CNL has arranged a meeting for this evening. It's for inshore enterprise owners right around the province, for licensed fishermen, for licensed fisherwomen. It's at 7 p.m. It's a virtual meeting on Zoom. Uh, that, that means you can attend from the comfort of your own home. And, and it's to talk about fishery cooperatives. This is Co-op Week in the province. Coincidentally, that, that's not why this was was organized. we got three fishery co-ops around the province right now. As you know, Labrador, Petty Harbor Fishermen's Co-op, Fogo Island Co-op. We've invited Ken Cavanaugh. He's a local expert on co-ops, on nonprofits. He had a hand in setting up 12 of the last 13 co-ops in the province. We've asked him to speak tonight to answer questions about cooperatives with the inshore fleet. Um, CNL members, members of CNL around the province, would have received a Zoom invitation in their mail. But uh, for, in, for enterprise owners who are listening uh, around the province, if you'd like to attend, uh, just to, you can email c-nl at outlook.com. Or if you can't remember that, just go to our website, c-nl.ca. Uh, but the meeting is all about co-ops. Uh, Ken Cavanaugh is the special guest. Uh, we need to find an economic model for the intro fishery that, that works because the model that's there now is not working. And we hope uh, people come out and attend. I'm surprised it's not more popular because the three aforementioned are pretty successful. And we can pursue this and add to it the grievance filed by the ASP uh, regarding the six-week standoff. We'll do that maybe next week, Ryan. But I appreciate this. Hopefully it's a big success. Thank you, Patty. And uh, I will definitely call in next week on that. Okay, thank you. Take care. Have a good night. Good right. day. Bye. Here you go, Ryan Cleary, CNL. Good show today. Lots of info. Woo! Uh, big thanks to all who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.